Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off. Erica Hill is here with us this morning. Let's get started with five things to know for this Friday, May 5th, 2023. Federal prosecutors in the Mar-a-Lago investigation are now getting cooperation from an insider who worked for Donald Trump at his resort. That's according to new reporting from The New York Times. Police have arrested a former UC Davis student in connection with three recent stabbings near campus. He's being held on two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. New overnight, a second mass shooting in Serbia in as many days. Eight people are dead, at least 13 others wounded. Police say they've arrested the gunman after an all-night manhunt. Also happening today, the April jobs report is going to be released. The number could help or maybe hurt jittery markets that are already on edge about the security of regional banks. And the UK preparing to officially crown its new king this weekend. Coronation dinner for King Charles is set for tonight at Buckingham Palace. CNN This Morning starts right now. So you have to be the most excited for the coronation. You did this whole amazing report on it on Sunday. It was so good. Thank you for watching. Yes. Um, it'll be really interesting to see. And I think so many people are, are, are watching, too, to see how different it is. Yeah. And how sort of modern they can make it. Yeah. And what it looks like with him taking over, of course, because, you know, his mom's so popular. People got really <laughs> used to the queen after 70 years. So yeah. it's a big change. Yeah. We'll be watching that. We have a full team on the ground in London for all of that. But breaking this morning, the leader of Russia's Wagner Group, the mercenary group, says he is pulling his troops out of Bakhmud. That is that key Ukrainian city that we've been talking about. They've been trying to capture it for months and now has heavy casualties. The leader of this group is publicly blasting Russian military leaders, accusing them of not supplying his men with ammunition. He posted an angry video on social media standing next to a pile of what he says were dead mercenaries. We have a warning now. We have blurred this video, but it is still very graphic. These men here who died today are Wagner PMC. Their blood is still fresh. You think you are the masters of this life? You think you can dispose of their lives? You think because you have warehouses full of ammunition that you have that right? The man you see there is Yevgeny Prigozhin. He is also a powerful oligarch known as Putin's chef because he operates a catering business and is very loyal to the Kremlin, or was once seen as so. He has been openly recruiting mercenaries from prisons, including convicted murderers, throwing them into the bloody fight in Bakhmud with little to no military training. Ukrainian forces say it has essentially been a meat grinder for these Wagner fighters. CNN's senior international security correspondent Nick Peyton Walsh is live in Zaporizhia in eastern Ukraine. Nick, I wonder how significant you see this video and this announcement from Prigozhin as given you've been covering this for so long. Yeah, it is remarkable to hear this kind of open statement, and it's staggering to imagine that by the middle of next week, a group which has so publicly talked about the vital nature of the fight for Bakhmut, thrown thousands of lives of convicts, often with very little training or tactical awareness into what, as you said, is the meat grinder, is now publicly telling the Russian Ministry of Defense and essentially Vladimir Putin that they're out by the middle of next week, just after the very important date in the Russian calendar calendar of Victory Day on May the 9th. They're saying there's sort of sticking around to be sure that isn't, quote, spoilt. Now, it is an extraordinary challenge uh, to the Kremlin, 
on the surface and certainly suggests that the rifts inside the Russian military, its different branches that seem to potentially have been healed in recent weeks, well, they're way out in the open. That video, that is a man essentially who's brought people to the front line and thrown them towards uh, Ukrainian guns very callously, suddenly claiming to have great emotion for the bodies behind him. But it is an absolutely stark suggestion as to the poor condition of Russian forces and the bickering internally. I have to hold out the possibility that this might be some bid to get the Ukrainians to rush towards Bakhmut, seeing an opportunity. But I have to say, this is now two days, three days of very embarrassing things for Vladimir Putin. We have the drones over the Kremlin. Whatever happened there in reality, it's certainly not a good look to have to admit to two drones flying over the heart of your government and damaging the roof there with an explosion and now we have a man who's probably one of the most public figures uh, of uh, the Russian military saying that they're going to give up this deeply symbolic city that they've thrown thousands. Remember, a recent U.S. assessment suggested 10,000 people may have died for Russia fighting for this city since December alone. And now here they are saying all of that will come to nothing unless they get military shells that they believe Russia is somehow holding onto in its warehouses. It may also be they're running out of them. Caitlin? Yeah, it's such a good point you make about how Prigozhin is now acting like he cares about their lives, about their well-being, when we've seen how they've been treated. And we should note, of course, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesperson, not commenting, not confirming this so far. We'll see what they say this morning. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you for that report in Ukraine. This morning, a significant development in the Trump classified documents investigation. The New York Times reporting federal prosecutors have secured the confidential cooperation of an insider witness who has worked at Mar-a-Lago. This unnamed witness has reportedly provided investigators with a picture of the storage room where the material had been held. Uh, we don't much else at this point, though, about what prosecutors may have learned from this insider. All of this, of course, part of the broader Justice Department investigation looking into whether Trump ordered boxes of sensitive materials out of a storage room. That, coupled with reporting you saw first here on CNN about prosecutors showing interest in Mar-a-Lago surveillance tapes, raising questions about where the investigation stands this morning. Let's bring in CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed. So, Paula, what, are, what should we take from all of this, particularly this new insider witness The New York Times is reporting about? Well, I'd be cautious about the New York Times story. It's a big, splashy headline from a group of very strong, award-winning reporters, but they don't provide any information about who this person is or what they have provided to investigators beyond a picture of a storage space. I mean, even the story itself says this could be significant, but little is known about what this person has provided. Now, as CNN has reported, pretty much everyone who's ever works at, works at Mar-a-Lago right now has been subpoenaed. Everyone from waiters uh, to people in operations to the director of security. And it's unclear if this person's cooperation is providing some sort of significant evidence or if they're just providing something like pictures of the premises that they may have been asked for by investigators. But as CNN first reported on Wednesday, investigators right now, they are really focused on whether they have all of the security footage from Mar-a-Lago that they need to determine what exactly happened to classified materials once they went down to Florida. We also broke the news that they had report they had subpoenaed two top security officials, Matthew Calamari and his son, Matthew Calamari Jr., to ask them what exactly happened to this footage after it was subpoenaed. Now, on that footage, the footage they have received, they see something significant in this investigation, something they've really narrowed in on, and that is a junior Trump aide, Walt Nada, and another employee 
moving boxes out of a storage facility. We subsequently learned that some of those boxes did contain classified materials. And investigators, understandably, have had a lot of questions about why Walt was moving those boxes out of that storage space, who directed him to do that, where did they go? Now, it's our understanding that Walt has talked to investigators multiple times, but has at times given inconsistent statements. People familiar with this investigation on the Trump side say, look, Walt Nada is not cooperating, and without his cooperation, it will be very difficult for the Justice Department to bring any case against the former president. But all of this reporting, both from The New York Times, from CNN, it's clear this is still a very active and ongoing investigation. Even yesterday, we saw new witnesses going before the grand jury. Yeah, it is notable to see they're still bringing people in on this. Paula Reed, as we know more about this, keep us updated. Thank you for that. A former UC Davis student arrested in connection with three stabbings near campus. Two of those victims died. Authorities released this photo of the suspect, 21-year-old Carlos Dominguez, who they believe is responsible for all three stabbings over the last week. These crimes were horrific. They're hard to imagine. They struck fear in the community, and we know that. We've also experienced loss. We hope that the announcement today provides provide some level of relief. Now, police say they received about 15 calls on Wednesday from people saying they had seen someone who matched the suspect's description in a park. When Dominguez was brought in for an interview, police say they found a large hunting knife in his backpack. He's facing two counts of homicide and one count of attempted murder. According to UC Davis, Dominguez was a student there until last week when he was, quote, separated for academic reasons. Yeah, a lot of questions about that story. Also, this one, as we are still tracking, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is looking into that disturbing video. It shows a subway rider putting a homeless man in a chokehold. Jordan Neely, we now know, died after that incident on Monday. His death has been ruled a homicide, though there are still a lot of questions about what happened here. The Marine veteran who put Neely in that chokehold for several minutes has not been arrested or charged with a crime. But protesters and even the governor here in New York, Kathy Hochul, are both demanding justice. CNN's Jason Carroll is live outside the subway station where it happened here in New York. Obviously, Jason, a lot of questions here because we do know that they questioned this former Marine about what happened here. They're talking to witnesses. What more do you know this morning? Right. This investigation well underway. And in terms of witnesses, uh, the DA's office says they're going to try to interview as many people as possible to try to put together a fuller picture of what happened here. The DA's office says he has his most experienced prosecutors on the case. Meanwhile, the governor has weighed in on this, calling this an, exp- an extreme response in terms of what happened here and says there has to be consequences for what happened to Neely. Calls for justice ringing out throughout New York City for Jordan Neely, a man who was killed on a New York City subway by another passenger who placed him in a chokehold. And the person posed no threat. He was screaming for food and drink. He had no weapon. He didn't assault anyone. How did he end up dead? The Manhattan District Attorney is investigating the incident. The former Marine who placed Neely in the chokehold was interviewed by police after the incident and released, according to a law enforcement source. I do want to acknowledge how horrific it was to view a video of Jordan Neely being killed uh, for being a passenger on our subway trains. 
His family deserves justice. The passenger who recorded this disturbing video says Neely had been acting erratically before the incident, shouting, I don't care if I die. I don't care if I go to jail. I don't have any food. But he says Neely did not try to attack anyone on the train. We arrive at the station, the doors open, all the people run away and, and the guys stay in this position about eight or seven, eight minutes. CNN has not been able to independently confirm what happened leading up to the incident, nor how long Neely was restrained or whether he was armed. Neely was a dancer and a Michael Jackson impersonator in Times Square and on New York subways. He had struggled with mental illness and had a history of prior arrests. Family and friends say Neely was deeply impacted by his mother's murder in 2007, according to the Jersey Journal. In 2012, a man was sentenced to 30 years in prison for murdering Neely's mother in their home and, quote, dumping her body in a suitcase in the Bronx. I know that him losing his mother, he never got over that. I know that he, from what he said, he didn't have a strong father figure in his life. I know that the only joy that he really found was in interacting with other members of the community and performing. Well, this is an issue that has touched on a whole number of pressing issues uh, here in the city, including crime and mental illness. New York's mayor has said, wait for the outcome of the investigation. Meanwhile, a protest is planned for later today in front of the Manhattan DA's office in support of Neely. Caitlin, Erica. Yeah, the whole thing is incredibly complicated and just sad all around. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Jason Carroll, thank you so much. Well, the White House is now floating a short-term fix on the debt limit as the nation faces a potential economic disaster just weeks from now. Also, the Justice Department just secured a major victory as the former leader of the Proud Boys and three other members have all been found guilty of seditious conspiracy. We're going to break down all of this with a legal expert next. By my best calculation, June 8th will be the day uh, when Treasury can't pay its bills. There is a possibility, uh, worst case scenario, that it'll be June the 1st, it'll be very close. Uh, best case scenario uh, will be uh, August 8th. Safe to say neither of those scenarios are very good, certainly not in Washington. That was the chief economist for Moody's, Mark Zandi, who predicted the U.S. will default on its debt roughly a month from now, could default on its debt roughly a month from now, I should say. Zandi urged lawmakers to set aside their political debates, to suspend the debt ceiling as soon as possible, or risk a recession. Congressional leaders and President Biden are set to meet at the White House on Tuesday. The White House now appears open to maybe a short-term fix of raising the debt limit for a shorter period of time. At least that part of the conversation about length, I would love to be in that part of the conversation because we're at least in the positive, defaults off the table. So I'm happy when we get to that part of the conversation. We're not there yet. Uh, and the idea is to bring, put brinksmanship to bed uh, and get to talking on making sure we avoid default. And once we're talking about time frame, that means we're at least on the right side of this debate. CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, joins us now here on set this morning. Uh, Shalani Young seems to be saying, you know, we'll take what we can get as long as we can get to some kind of agreement. Yes. And I think, to be fair, that's always been the case to some degree. I think 
Look, this stuff is actually not complicated. I think the value of Shalanda, who, by the way, is the person you should watch in this debate yeah. and in this negotiation going forward. She's a longtime Hill veteran who's been at the center of all of the agreements that have happened in all of the wars and budgets and probes over the course of the last couple of years. This issue is not that complicated. What gets complicated is negotiating positions, politics, messaging, all of those types of issues. Um, the White House needs the debt ceiling raised, period, end of story. By the way, so does everyone else in the entire country. The entire economy is at stake here and not a lot of time to do it. The issue right now is the White House thought they had a negotiating position that one would help them in the near term. They thought they had precedent. They thought the adults in the room would all say, why are you negotiating over the idea of default? This should not even be on the table. This shouldn't be a point of leverage. We should move away from this. The problem right now is Kevin McCarthy, the leader of House Republicans, passed a bill. Kevin McCarthy has leverage because he has a bill that's actually passed. Mitch McConnell, the Senate uh, Minority Leader, has not joined with Kevin McCarthy, or has not joined with the White House, has stayed with Kevin McCarthy. And so we're at this stalemate right now where no one's really sure how to get out of it. And the two negotiating positions, the two positions of the two sides, are completely diametrically opposed with no real middle ground or pragmatic area to find a resolution. Other than that, though, everything's wonderful. Everything's doing great. <laughs> so we're, so we're going to be fine. We have nothing to worry about. No politics getting in the way here. here. The brinksmanship the, will be fine. Here's the actual concern. We've been in these moments before. 2011 was probably yes. the most acute and dangerous for the economy. We see this with government shutdowns constantly. And there's always a way out, right? The last minute they figure out, people like Shalanda Young, when she was on the Hill or when she's in the administration, find some way to thread the needle, some uh, kind of legislative solution here. The difference right now is when you talk to people who really know what's going on, they don't know what that solution is. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's scary, to be frank. The other complicating factor here for the White House is that Biden is running for re-election. So he's considering that and how he's responding to all of this. They're not just simply going for this end goal. He's thinking of how does it play politically. One thing that's been talked about with his re-election effort is his age. Of course, this is something that he has said is a legitimate question. Jeff Zeleny was in Michigan talking to voters what they think about this. This is what they told him. I think we need a new generation of leaders. I think we need uh, people with fresh ideas. I personally only voted for him as a way to um, debunk um, Trump. I really thought our democracy was in jeopardy and wanted someone else. A year people say age is just a number um, until God takes him home and he has the strength right now to do what he needs to be doing for the country. It looks much better than I expected him to. But what can I say? I'm 80 years old myself, so uh, he's one of my people. He's one of my people. The White House is like, um, okay, how do they respond to that? Um, one, this shows that the polls are right, right? Yeah. This is obviously a significant concern, and it's one the White House officials admit you know this very well. They've been keenly aware of this for a long time. That second sound that you heard from Jeff's great interviews was the critical one. Donald Trump's running again. Donald Trump is winning in the polls by a significant margin and right now seems to be on the path to be the Republican nominee. That voter who voted just to get Donald Trump out of the White House, who voted because they're concerned about democracy or voted because they're concerned about the prior four years, they're going to have that same concern this time around. And that should drive people together. I think you will see the party unify. And the, the feeling inside the White House is Democrats will come home, the base will be there, and then others will join as well when they're concerned about the broader issues here. Contrast is key with them. They know age is an issue. They feel like on the contrast level, that's where they win. Yeah. We'll see. Phil, appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. Thanks, Phil. Uh, the Washington Post uncovering reported payments between a prominent conservative judicial activist and the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Those details ahead. Also, the jury in E. Jean Carroll's battery and defamation lawsuit against Trump heard from the former president himself, not in person, but what he said in a video recorded deposition and why he told an attorney, yes, an attorney, she wasn't his type. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Former President Donald Trump slamming the woman accused of him, accusing him of rape as fake, saying he'll probably attend the trial. And I have to go back for a woman that made a false accusation about me, and I have a judge who's extremely hostile. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to confront this one. This woman is a disgrace, and it shouldn't be allowed to happen in our country. So closing arguments in E. Jean Carroll's case against Trump are set to start on Monday. The former president has not appeared in court during the span of the seven-day trial. His attorney says he still doesn't plan to testify. The judge, however, is giving the former president until Sunday at 5 p.m. to change his mind. Carroll is suing Trump for battery and defamation. She says he raped her in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room in the 90s and then lied about it, destroying her reputation. Trump says it never happened. CNN's Kara Scannell joining us now. So, Kara, both sides have rested their case, but now we have, I guess, this little window until Sunday at 5. So now we just wait. What an unexpected twist that happened yesterday. Uh, <clears throat> so Carol's attorneys rested their case after calling 11 witnesses. You know, Carol herself testified. Trump's attorneys said they were not putting on a defense. They thought about calling an expert witness, then didn't. And Trump's attorney had said that the former president was not coming. Then, of course, these comments overnight were hanging in the air all day yesterday uh, until the end of the day. The judge asked Trump's attorney, are you resting your case? This was outside the presence of the jury. He said, yes, I am. He said, does Trump waive his right to testify? He said, yes. And then the judge said, well, I'm going to give you to five o'clock anyway, kind of acknowledging that Trump's attorney can't control his client. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, you know, just to protect the integrity of this trial, I'm going to give you until five o'clock to say for sure whether you want to do this. And the judge said, it doesn't mean I'm going to grant it, but I'm going to allow this space. And but but they then went straight into conversations about the schedule, how closing arguments will take place Monday and the jury will get it as soon as Tuesday. And I think one thing is Trump's lawyers don't always speak for him. You know, obviously yeah. we saw that many times in the White House. The, he wasn't there in person, but they did hear from him in a deposition that I think was done in October. What is he saying in this deposition? Yeah, so they heard about 30 minutes yesterday and they heard about 25 minutes the day before. And, you know, in this deposition, Trump is kind of sitting hunched over, pretty still, you know, answering the questions. Uh, but it's the first and only time the jury will hear from Trump as of now, you know, address these specific allegations in the case. Uh, you know, so, you know, they... It was your regular Q&A, but then they were confronting him with some of his own comments, including the Access Hollywood tape, where Trump is there and he's talking about how, you know, he's a celebrity. You know, he just kisses women. He can't help himself. Uh, so he, a little bit of the deposition here it, it's a videotape. We've asked for it from the court and the parties, and we're working through this process to get it. So hopefully we can bring it to everyone. But um, here's what he says. He says, well, historically, that's true with stars. And Carol's attorney says, true with stars that they can grab women by the and Trump says, well, that's what, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but both largely true, unfortunately or fortunately. Um, <laughs> and then he's also, though, addresses the defamation claim in this case. You know, this is all based on a truth social post he made. And he's, you know, asked, did you write this yourself? And he says, oh, yeah, I wrote it myself. You know, I don't know who this woman is. It's a hoax. She's not my type. And then he says to Carol's attorney this. You wouldn't be a choice of mine either, to be honest. I wouldn't, under any circumstances, have any interest in you. Uh, so certainly not um, taking a more demure posture in his deposition from the Trump that we see often in these campaign speeches. Yeah, certainly not. Uh, no, I'm going to leave that one alone. Kara, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Kara.
New overnight, the Washington Post has just put out a report drawing more scrutiny to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. I, apparently a high-profile conservative judicial activist arranged for the wife of Justice Thomas, her name is Jenny Thomas, to be paid tens of thousands of dollars, but that there should be, quote, no mention of her. This is how it all worked, according to the Washington Post. The conservative judicial activist known as Leonard Leo, who plays a high-profile role in many Republican circles, he advises a network of conservative nonprofits, including one known as the Judicial Education Project. In 2012, the same year that that nonprofit filed a brief to the Supreme Court in a landmark voting rights case, Leonard Leo told Kellyanne Conway, of course, who later became a Trump advisor, that he wanted to give Ginny Thomas, quote, another $25,000 with, quote, no mention of Ginny, of course. That day, her company billed the Judicial Education Project for $25,000, and that money was for Ginny Thomas. Documents reviewed by the Post show that Conway's company paid Thomas's firm $80,000 between June 2011 and June 2012. It's still not fully clear what exactly Jenny Thomas did for Conway's polling company or for the Judicial Education Project. The nonprofit did file a brief in Shelby versus Holder where the court invalidated key parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Justice Thomas wrote an opinion in that case that was consistent with Judicial Education Project's position. Here's how Leonard Leo is responding to all of this reporting. Quote, the work Jenny did here did not involve anything connected with either the court's business or with other legal issues, knowing how disrespectful, malicious, and gossipy people can be, I'm always trying to protect the privacy of Justice Thomas and Jenny. You should know the Post did not receive responses from Justice Thomas, from Jenny Thomas, his wife, or from Kelly and Conway in this. In one of the highest profile January 6th cases yet, a jury in Washington has convicted four far-right Proud Boys members of seditious conspiracy, including its former leader, Enrique Tarrio. Now, prosecutors accused five men of mounting a sophisticated operation to block the transfer of power from former President Trump to President Joe Biden. The jury convicted four of sedition and three other conspiracy charges, obstructing the Electoral College vote and tampering with evidence. The fifth man was found guilty on a handful of other felonies. Now, the verdict is a major win for the Justice Department, marking the third time prosecutors have secured guilty sedition verdicts linked to the January 6th insurrection. Attorney General Merrick Garland said it is clear the DOJ will do everything in its power to defend democracy. The evidence presented at trial detailed the extent of the violence at the Capitol on January 6th and the central role these defendants played in setting into motion the unlawful events of that day. Tario's lawyer has argued prosecutors were using his client as a scapegoat and has already promised to appeal the decision. Let's bring in now Harvard Law Professor Alan Jenkins. He's also the co-author of One Sixth, the graphic novel, which is out today. Uh, good to have you with us this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about that book. But first, I'm just curious your take on what we saw in terms of these guilty verdicts. What does that do here? What is that message? Well, you know, stepping back, the, democracy is the most important value we have as Americans. These guys tried to steal it. They tried to overthrow a full and fair election. And four of them were convicted of, of conspiracy, uh, of seditious conspiracy. So I, I think that's appropriate. I think we also see that the jury was careful. Mm -hmm. They convicted some defendants of some things and others of other things. So I think it gives us some confidence that they were really paying close attention. The implications are significant. There are multiple investigations into tampering with this election, 
at least two of them involving President Trump. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but it's, it's an important big step. So they did pay close attention to the charges here. One thing that I was interested by as this was breaking yesterday and this verdict was being read a lot in court is Pizzola, one of the figures here, was not convicted of, or he wasn't charged and convicted of seditious conspiracy like the others because he wasn't a member, he wasn't a leader in the Proud Boys, but he, among the five of them, was the most violent that day. He was, and he was convicted of other charges. We'll remember the, the images of him taking the sh a shield from yeah. a, an mm -hmm. officer and using it to break into the Capitol building. So he was certainly an actor here, but seditious conspiracy requires some other elements, and the jury found that that, that hadn't been proved in his case. When we look at what else is to come here and we look at other pending cases and what we heard from Merrick Garland, do you think this is sending the message that the Justice Department wants it to send? Is it being heard by the right people? Well, it depends who, who we think are the right people. I, I think that the threats to our democracy still remain. I don't think you see these uh, actors going away particularly the Proud Boys. Uh, and so, you know, whether the, the, they're hearing the message that this was the wrong thing to do, I don't know. Uh, whether the American public is seeing that there is some measure of accountability for an attempt to overthrow a democracy, I think, yes, may, perhaps not enough, but I think we see some important steps there. And one thing here in your book out today and why this is so relevant to this entire discussion is what could have happened that day. And you kind of envision the scenario what is the worst case scenario of what could have happened that day? Well, you know, regarding the book, I, I love comic books and I love democracy and our democracy remains at risk. And so a comic book seemed like a good way to reach a large audience with that message. In terms of what could have happened, uh, you know, not much would have need to have changed. You remember that the uh, professor, uh, pardon me, uh, Officer Goodman led the mob away yeah. from the Senate chamber. If they had turned right instead of left, as they do in our graphic novel, we could have had a completely different scenario. If President Trump had had the opportunity to declare martial law, to deputize the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, as they were asking him to do, uh, we could have found ourselves almost immediately in an authoritarian state. Uh, it's very scary, and a lot of those dangers still exist. It'll be fascinating. You, know, you, also sent, you sent copies to 150, 150 members of Congress? We, we sent copies to 150 election deniers election in deniers. Congress so they can <laughs> grapple yeah. with the implications of what they tried to do. We also sent it to a lot of election defenders uh, in Congress, a lot of people, elected officials in both parties, who stood up for democracy and did the right thing that day. Uh, and so we thought it was important both uh, to praise and reward tomorrow's free comic book day. I'm sure you didn't know that. Uh, and uh, also some kind of coronation is going on apparently tomorrow. Uh, and there's a big uh, horse race too. There's a lot happening. Yes, yeah, so a big day. But uh, in any event, we wanted to, uh, to send a message both to the yeah. deniers and to the supporters of democracy. Yeah. Good to have you here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. And as, of course, we just mentioned, the coronation <laughs> of King Charles III is happening in less than 24 hours. CNN's Max Foster is live. Where else? Buckingham Palace with a preview. We were here for the royal wedding in 2011, and we camped out across the street. And so we're just uh, back to do it again for a while. I don't know when we'd ever get to do another coronation. 
So there you have it. This morning, uh, just one of many excited royal fans from around the world camped out, ready for King Charles III's coronation tomorrow. Police have deployed more than 29,000 officers to prepare for one of their greatest ever security challenges, known as Operation Golden Orb. They have firearms officers, dog handlers, mounted police, helicopters, all in place to keep people safe, including our own Max Foster. We want Max to stay safe. He's live in London this morning outside Buckingham Palace. Uh, boy, a lot of excitement brewing. What's happening there on the ground? Well, it's also to keep the crown jewels safe. They're never allowed out of the uh, Tower of London normally. So they've got all these priceless, uh, you know, ornaments, really, which are part of the ceremony and really an expression of the fact that this is not... These aren't just um, historic items. These are part of a working uh, monarchy. So I think, you know, you might be pro-monarchy, you might be anti-monarchy, but one thing you are guaranteed of if you tune in tomorrow to see what's going on, it will be a spectacular show. We haven't seen anything like this for 70 years. For more than a thousand years, the coronation ceremony for English monarchs has remained largely unchanged. King Charles will walk into Westminster Abbey in the footsteps of his ancestors. Ancient symbols like the Stone of Schoon, seized from Scotland by King Edward in the 13th century and used in coronations ever since, brought to London for Saturday's event. The palace says he also wants to reflect modern Britain and look to the future. The challenge will be how to do both during a cost-of-living crisis. Charles will be crowned with the St Edward's crown the very same one placed upon previous monarchs. Crown jewels will feature, including scepters, a golden orb, and various swords, each with their own symbolism. He'll wear robes that have been passed down through the generations. The anointing, the most sacred spiritual part of the service, will be hidden from view by a special screen, one of the only newly made pieces for the coronation. Because Charles, who's always been known for his environmental campaigning, has been keen to emphasise reuse. He'll be welcomed to the Abbey first by a young chorister, to whom he'll say, I come not to be served, but to serve. Inclusivity is at the top of his agenda. The ceremony will be conducted by the Archbishop of Canterbury, the most senior member of the Church of England after the King. It looks round at our society and seeks to reflect us as we are, with joy and celebration. For the first time, people of multiple faiths will have a role. Even the Pope has sent a gift. Fragments believed to be of Jesus' cross, which have been incorporated into this new one, which will lead the coronation procession. Symbols the new monarch hopes will be enough to reflect his continued relevance in the modern world, whilst honouring sacred tradition. A truly global event. Heads of state from around the world are flying in. There'll be a reception tonight at Buckingham Palace behind me. We think it will be the largest gathering of heads of state ever, ever, certainly in the UK. Wow. All right, Max, appreciate it. Thank you. And of course, CNN's coverage of the coronation of King Charles III begins tomorrow morning at 5 Eastern right here on CNN. Yep. Set your alarms. Also this morning, we are seeing newly released footage. You're going to want to see this. You haven't had an update on this case in a while, but there are new court documents related to the murders of those four Idaho college students. What we've learned ahead.
This morning, newly released footage and documents in the case against Brian Koberger, the suspect in the quadruple murder that last November at the University of Idaho. A number of body camera videos were released, and this one shows Koberger being pulled over for running a red light nearby Washington State University a month before the killings took place. Yeah, I, I do apologize if I was asking you too many questions about the law. I wasn't trying to, like... No, 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 not at all. Like, I understand you're not from here. The officer who was speaking with him there let him go without writing a ticket. It was cited in a probable cause affidavit, noting that the video showed him as the driver and sole occupant of that white sedan. Joining us now for more on these documents and what they uncovered, CNN's Gene Casares. A lot of material that was released, and you've been covering this so closely. I wonder what stood out the most to you. Well, first of all, in that video, the date is critically important. It's October 14th. It is almost one month to the day when those murders happened. And so to see him and to hear him, and the audio is really good. If we have any more of that, you know, I, I would love the audience to hear it. Go. I think you know why I stopped you. You ran the red light. What actually happened was I was stuck in the middle of the intersection. Yeah, so I was, I was behind you the whole left. time. Yeah. Yeah. So technically, you're not supposed to enter the intersection at all for that reason, because if the light turns red, then you're stuck in the intersection, and then you're on the red light. So that's the reason I stopped you. I, I'm actually just from a very rural area, mm -hmm. so we just don't have crosswalks. Oh. Unless I visit an area where there are crosswalks, gotcha. and then it's it's not very frequent. Yeah. yeah I, I do apologize if mm -hmm. I was asking you too many questions. Okay. So you, so you see no, him no, no, interacting, like very polite, here, so. very contrary to anything that happened one month later in that home in Moscow. Now, also documents were released. We want to show everybody. They did testing on the scene for blood in that apartment. We knew they had found some reddish stains that had come out before. But if you look at the document that is to the left of the one that is bright and white, you will see that there is one line and one check mark that says positive, presumptively positive for blood. They found two stains that they believe could be blood. They did testing at the scene. One was a pillow. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a pillowcase. The other was a mattress cover. And when you do a presumptive test at the scene that denotes positivity for blood, then you have to go into the lab to do a conclusive test. But obviously, they took those swabbings there. They went to the apartment. It's very obvious. Idaho was communicating with Pennsylvania when they were making the arrest. Idaho was flying in. They executed the search at the apartment. And they found a lot of things were just cleared out. They did collect things. The defense, a few weeks later, went back with law enforcement. The defense collected even more things to put in their possession. Wow. wow. Didn't know any of this before. Yeah, it's also disturbing, especially as we're just learning more about this as this trial is obviously going to progress. Keep us updated if anything else comes mm -hmm. out and what you see we there. But it is remarkable, like you said, to hear from him. Yes, it is. Just so yes. strange. And he has still pled not guilty. Mm -hmm. Jane, thank you. Uh, up next, there's some new CNN reporting on how Russia is foiling game-changing U.S.-made weapons in Ukraine. Also, take a look at this. <laughs> <laughs> Fist flying in Turkey after a Russian representative took down the Ukrainian flag at a summit. We'll show you more of that video. More CNN this morning to come after the break. The Warriors evening up their playoff series against the Lakers with a blowout win in game two.
Andy Schultz joins us with more. Andy, obviously, it's, it's just like every day it's a great game for Steph Curry. Yeah, it seems like that, right, guys? He's just so good at the game of basketball. But this series, you know, it really has seven games written all over it. And it was the Warriors making the adjustments in game two. And they certainly worked. Jermichael Green starting for Kevon Looney, who was feeling a bit under the weather. He gave the Warriors a boost on offense, scoring 15 points in just 13 minutes. Now, the Lakers, they actually led by seven after the first quarter of this one. But the second and third quarters just belonged to Golden State. They outscored L.A. 84-47. to Klay Thompson getting red hot, making eight of his 11 threes for 30 points. Warriors would cruise to a 127-100 win. We know LeBron has seen it all, AD's seen it all, and uh, it's 1-1 uh, it's at the end of the day. So we got to go to L.A. and get one and uh, go from there. They made the adjustments, and, um, you know, we knew they were going to do that. Um, that's what a championship team does, and, uh, you know, they, they held serve on their home court tonight, and we got to um, obviously see the adjustments they make. We got to make our adjustments coming into game three. Yeah, and the series now shifts to L.A., guys, for Game 3 on Saturday. And as a basketball fan, really just hoping this one ends up going seven games because that would be certainly <laughs> something special watching Steph and LeBron. You always want it to go seven games because that's more playmaking that you get to watch and watch these amazing athletes continue to play. Andy, yep. we'll be watching. We'll be rooting for seven games. Thank you. All right. And CNN This Morning continues right now. The leader of Russia's Wagner Group, the Mercenary Group, says he is pulling his troops out of Bakhmut, that key Ukrainian city. These men here who died today are Wagner PMC. Their blood is still fresh. They're out by the middle of next week, just after the very important date in the Russian calendar of Victory Day on May the 9th. Police in California have arrested a former UC Davis student accused of stabbing three people, killing two of them. These crimes were horrific. We hope that the announcement provides some level of relief. Dominguez could be arraigned in court as early as Monday. Protests in support of Neely have called for answers. It could have been somebody there to help him. He should still be alive today. There have to be consequences. His family deserves justice. He's supposed to use intelligence and compassion and know how to talk to each other. A jury convicting more far-right extremists of sedition, all members of the Proud Boys. This happened, this was real, and justice must be served. I'll never regret something that I said. The Justice Department will never stop working to defend American democracy. The jury decided that Sharon did not copy Marvin Gaye's classic hit, Let's Get It On. This is a very big moment for the music industry, especially for Ed Sheeran. I will never allow myself to be a piggy bank for anyone to shake. I'm just a guy with a guitar who loves writing music for people to enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Puppy is off today. Much deserved. Erica Hill in with us. Nice Gonna to be with you. On Friday morning. Yeah, happy Friday. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of breaking news this morning, a lot of headlines to get to. This morning, the Ukrainian military says they may be witnessing a turning point in the war. The head of Russia's Wagner Group, the mercenary group, says he is pulling his troops out of Bakhmut. That is that key Ukrainian city where there has been so much fighting happening recently. Russia has been trying to capture it for months, but they've suffered heavy casualties as a result of that. The head of this group is now blasting 
the Russian military and its leaders, accusing them of withholding ammunition from him and from his fighters. He released an angry video overnight, standing next to a pile of what he says are dead mercenaries, their bodies. I want to warn you now, we have blurred this video, but it is still quite graphic. These men here who died today are Wagner PMC. Their blood is still fresh. You think you are the masters of this life? You think you can dispose of their lives? You think because you have warehouses full of ammunition that you have that right? Now, he says his mercenaries are leaving in just five days. Losing the battle for Bakhmut could be a major setback for Russian forces as they brace for a Ukrainian counteroffensive. Meantime, Moscow is warning the United States and Russia are on the verge of what it says is uh, the chance for open armed conflict after this mysterious drone attack on the Kremlin this week. The White House is rejecting the Kremlin's baseless claims that the U.S. was somehow responsible, calling it ludicrous. Here's what Russia's foreign minister said just a short time ago. It was clearly a hostile act. It is absolutely clear that the Kyiv terrorists could not have committed it without the knowledge of their masters. We will not respond by talking about whether it was Casus Belli or not, but we will respond with concrete actions. We also have brand new CNN reporting this morning. We are learning Russian forces have been ramping up their use of electronic jammers in an effort to throw off American-made rocket systems on the battlefield. Ukraine's military has hailed the HIMARS system as a game-changer in this war. The jammers, though, have been causing the rockets to miss. For more now, let's bring in CNN senior national security correspondent Alex Markhart. So, Alex, just you know, how, dis- how disruptive has this jamming been? Well, Erica, it has made the piece of weaponry uh, that has perhaps had the greatest impact on the Ukrainian battlefield less effective. Normally, this is an extraordinarily precise rocket system. The HIMARS can fire six rockets at a given time uh, at targets uh, 50 miles or some 80 kilometers away. When you talk to Ukrainians on the ground, both uh, civilian and military, they talk about it in an almost mythical way. Uh, But because these rockets are guided by GPS, that means that they can be jammed. And that has what has that is what has been happening uh, with increasing regularity, we are told, that uh, the, these rockets are being jammed. They're being thrown off course. Uh, I spoke with a Ukrainian source who talks to drone operators on the front lines who fly over targets. They say uh, <clears throat> that uh, targets are increasingly being missed, that the HIMARS are increasingly less precise. And so what that has forced is the U.S. and Ukraine to come up with workarounds to pierce uh, that Russian jamming. When the Russians figure out how to jam, the Ukrainians have to figure out how to get around that. Then the Russians will figure out how to counteract that, and Ukraine will have to come up with another countermeasure. So. In the words of one senior Pentagon official, it is constant tweaking. It is a constant game of cat and mouse. And that has to be done because the HIMARS are so critical to Ukraine's fight. Yeah, I mean, that's not good to good news for Ukraine, period. But also this comes, Alex, as we are expecting the counteroffensive to begin. We don't know exactly when, but soon relatively. So how much of how pressing of an issue is this given that nature? Well, it's really important because the HIMARS have been so important throughout this fight and will be critical for this counteroffensive. The HIMARS are needed and will be needed in this counteroffensive to reach well beyond the front lines, to hit uh, logistical hubs, uh, command posts, uh, communications nodes, ammunition depots. So we are told 
It is a high priority, and the U.S. is focusing on helping Ukraine find these jammers and destroy them. It is not just HIMARS that are affected. It is other uh, GPS-guided smart munitions, uh, we are told. So this is certainly a priority both for the U.S. and for Ukraine to seek out and destroy those jammers. Caitlin, Erica. Important reporting and context appreciated. Alex, thank you. Also this morning here in the U.S., police in California have arrested a former UC Davis student in that string of stabbings that happened near campus. Two of the victims died, as we noted. One was wounded. Authorities released this photo of the suspect. It's 21-year-old Carlos Dominguez. They believe he is responsible for all three stabbings that have happened within a relatively close distance of one another this week. These crimes were horrific. They're hard to imagine. They struck fear in the community. And we know that. We've also experienced loss. We hope that the announcement today provides some level of relief. CNN's Veronica Miracle joins us now from Davis, California. Veronica, one thing that stood out to me is that this suspect was a student until about April 25th when he was separated for what they said were academic reasons. What do we know? Uh, that's right, Caitlin. The university is being pretty tight-lipped about exactly what that means, but we know that he was a junior. That separation happened last week, and then the first murder took place two days after that separation due to academic reasons. Uh, police say that they were able to make this arrest thanks to the community, thanks to all of the students and the people that live in Davis for their help, because they got about 15 phone calls two days ago about, uh, and all of these calls describing a man at a park with the same description as the suspect. And when they arrived, they found 21-year-old Carlos Dominguez at that park uh, where the second homicide took place. That first homicide happened last Thursday where a man was killed. The second homicide took place on Saturday where a UC Davis student was killed. And then on Monday, the latest stabbing attack happened and a woman was critically injured. Uh, she is still in the hospital. Now, when asked if police, uh, when asked po police, when asked uh, about whether Dominguez was at that second park uh, when he was discovered uh, searching for his next potential victim. They said they didn't know, but that he did have a large knife on him. Here's what the police chief had to say. We decided to first arrest him for possessing a large knife that was on his person when he was picked up. He was uh, wearing a backpack and in, in the backpack was a, a large knife that was consistent with one that we were looking for based on evidence from the first homicide. And Dominguez has been placed under arrest for two counts of homicide, one count of attempted homicide, and he could be arraigned as early as Monday. Caitlin? We'll be watching for that arraignment. Veronica Miracle, thank you. There is a significant development in the probe of Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. The New York Times reporting this morning, federal prosecutors have secured the confidential cooperation of an unnamed insider witness who has worked at Mar-a-Lago. Now, that witness has reportedly given investigators a picture of the storage room where the material had been held. As for what other information may have been disclosed by this person, that is unclear in terms of what prosecutors may have learned from the insider. But this news comes less than 24 hours after CNN was the first to report that prosecutors issued several subpoenas to the Trump Organization about the handling of surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago after last summer's subpoena. 
Also this morning, Wall Street preparing for what could be another volatile day. Investors are closely watching what the forthcoming April jobs report is going to show. We'll bring you those numbers because they'll be released in the next hour. But of course, the fear around regional banks is far from subsiding right now. PacWest saw its share price cut in half after it confirmed it was, quote, exploring strategic option. strategic options. Western Alliance's stock tumbled after the Financial Times reported the bank was also exploring a sale, which the bank denied. First Horizon scrapped a $13 billion merger with TD Bank, which sent its stock plunging more than 30 percent. As the banking turmoil continues to drag on, one senior analyst at a foreign exchange company tells CNN there's a lot of concern that, quote, something's about to break. It's a pretty dire warning. Let's bring in CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, and CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, for this. I mean, it seems like this is all just a crisis of confidence because these banks that are in the eye of the storm are saying, we're fine. Our finances are solid, but no one is seems to believe that. You're absolutely, I mean, confidence is the, the whole, the oxygen of the banking system here. And you look at these most recent two that we're mm-hmm. watching, they're bouncing back this morning. Um, so that's really important. So some confidence has returned, but these are small, itty bitty little regional banks. They're not a systemic problem. And I think that that's what Jamie Dimon, the chairman of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, was suggesting to analysts and investors earlier this week. There could be other shoes to drop. But the overall banking system is still fine. I think what you have here is you have Wall Street is looking for the weakest gazelle in the herd, and they're looking at those little regional banks, and that's so that's what you've been seeing there. And I think what's so fascinating is look, SVB was a terribly mismanaged bank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The failure, I think, was uh, a necessity yeah. <laughs> to some degree. Signature was caught up in some of the same mismatch issues in terms of uh, what their balance sheet looked like, but also some crypt- crypto issues as well. First Republic, everyone has known for the last two months, was right on the brink, and it was only a matter of time. To Christine's point, all very large banks, particularly SUB and First Republic. These banks we're talking about right now are 40s, 50s, 60s in terms of size uh, overall. What's fascinating is the issues that took down SVB in terms of having long-term securities that are deeply underwater and not necessarily having Mm -hmm. the equity to match up with them. um, That's not necessarily out of the norm, particularly in a high interest rate environment. What's different now is people are looking at that data, which is publicly available, and then talking about it talking about it on social media, talking about it online, driving short sellers to go after these banks, which in any other world would probably be fine, be doing normal course of business. And then you have pressure. And so they say, well, we have to raise money. Then it comes out that they're going to raise money. Yeah. And that shows weakness. So people attack right. them for that. So they're yeah. not necessarily doing anything different or wrong or catastrophic. It's the chatter about it that's really yeah. driving this, right? It's now. the chatter and then the lens that that brings too, right? I mean, totally. this is this is almost the exact conversation in many ways that we seem to consistently have on the economy. Even when the numbers are good, even when the job numbers are good, it's how people feel. And part of that feeling is what do they see online? What do they see out there that's raising an alarm bell for them even if the data may not back well, it up. And so yeah. far, the deposits are not fleeing these banks. That's what's so interesting. It's investors that are mm-hmm. selling the stock. It's not that depositors are fleeing these banks. But at some point, then it becomes a vicious cycle if then people start hearing, wait, is there something wrong with this bank? And they decide to, um, to pull their money out. So I think we're in a new phase. of. I'm not calling it a banking crisis, banking stress. We're in a new phase of mm-hmm. banking stress. And I think we will see headlines like this. We saw that merger that was scuttled yesterday. That was kind of a plain vanilla merger in February. And now it's like, okay, everything has really changed here. They said that was regulatory uncertainty over the timeline. There's a reason why they scuttled that merger. So I think it's a new phase here in banking. But Phil, what is the White House thinking on all of this? I mean, I 
I'm sure they're tracking all this closely. Well, what are they saying behind the scenes? We'd like this to go away as soon <laughs> yeah, as possible, like, yeah, particularly now. given the fact in about no, a thank month you. we're looking at another uh, enormous crisis. Yeah. Look, I think what Jamie Dimon said publicly and what the Fed chair said publicly uh, over the course of the last yeah. 10 days uh, very much uh, are where the White House is on this issue. I, I think they feel like the crux of the quote-unquote crisis for the course of seven weeks is past them because the major banks that were of concern are now gone or merged or wherever they are. Um, but I also think they understand from a pure market basis, from a pure system basis, that when people are unsettled, when a market's unsettled, yeah. and when we're in this very mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, volatile moment, there's a lot of risk that comes with that. So I think they're watching it very closely. The irony is that big banks just get bigger, you know, and right. community yeah. banks and regional banks, which are good, which are good for the economy and good for the country, those are the ones that are kind of on the ropes. I think that's the irony for the White House that, you know, has been, you know, the Wall Street Journal says it hates the big banks, which is not true, you know. <laughs> right, right. But I also think that survive in advance right. is a, a pretty good economic posture yeah, in these exactly, moments, exactly. and they'll deal with the too big to fail issue afterwards. Yeah, we'll see what progressives on Capitol Hill say about that. Yeah. Bill, Christine, <laughs> thank nice you both. You guys. Well, the U.S. could default on its debt, of course, just weeks from now. The White House now floating a short-term fix to prevent an economic disaster. President Biden's senior advisor going to join us live here on set. And the maker of a popular weight loss drug now setting limits because of skyrocketing demand. Which drug? What are the limits? We'll tell you next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. They love this. They love to see... Uh, chaos in the American system. Uh, They love to see that we can't do our basic jobs. It's no less than a test of what works in this world. Does democracy still work? Or does the Chinese way work? That's Shalonda Young. She runs the Office of Management and Budget for the White House. She's warning that countries like China and Russia are going to take advantage of the chaos if the U.S. does default on its debt, something that could happen in just a month from now is that warning from the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 1st, unless Congress does raise the debt limit. That is in the big fight on Capitol Hill. Congressional leaders and President Biden are going to meet on Tuesday. But after that meeting, there are just a few days when the House and Senate are in session. Of course, they can talk, they can negotiate when they're not actually in session. But the president is scheduled to travel for at least another six days later this month. He's going to, to Japan and Australia to meet with other world leaders. That will put him out of the country as all these fights are going on. It is a tight schedule. There's a lot at stake. The White House is warning this week that a protracted default could wipe out 8 million jobs, cut the stock market in half. So joining us now for more on this light, casual conversation, President Biden's senior advisor and infrastructure implementation coordinator, Mitch Landrew. Hey, Thanks for being here. Great Good to, be to have you. you. Given... We're so close to that warning date that Janet Yellen is talking about. Has the White House actually started planning for what a default would look like? Well, the first thing to remember and understand, this is a manufactured crisis. Since the beginning of the 60s, 78 times the debt limit has been raised. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, under President Trump, three times without preconditions. So this is really a manufactured crisis. During the regular budget process, you covered this. We all have arguments about what what we're going to spend, what we're going to cut. How are we going to finance the government? And the president's position has always been, listen, stop holding a gun to the head of the American people because you plan a very, very dangerous game. Uh, and that's been his that's been his position. He's going to meet, of course, with the leaders uh, on Tuesday. He's going to reiterate that message to them. Uh, they're going to continue to talk to see if they can figure out how to make sure that, number one, we raise the debt ceiling. And then if they want to have a discussion about the values in that budget versus the values in the president, the president is ready to have that argument every day. 
But is the White House having conversations about what it does look like if we come to a month from now and there's no agreement? Well, this White House is never going to be unprepared to respond to whatever crisis confronts us. That's what presidential leadership is about. But again, the president wants to be really clear about this to the American public. This is like walking up to somebody and say, I'm going to burn your house down if you don't let me hurt your neighbor who just came back from the VA and can't get medical care or the old folks down the street that can't get hot meals on wheels, et cetera. That's not a good position to put in. And the consequence of burning the House down is actually to hurt every other American. That's the position that the House Republicans are putting the country in. And the president doesn't want that to happen and is going to lead, as he always has. What's Tuesday going to look like? behind closed doors. I and mean, is, is President Biden bringing a counteroffer? What's that going to look like Because when they're I'm, all in the room I'm, together? I'm not going to be in the room, so, so I don't know. But the president's going to do what he always does. As you know, we talked about with the infrastructure bill, people said the president couldn't bring people together, and he always tries to do that. But he always does it in a principled way, in a thoughtful way, with practical you know, responses and consequences. But you can't yield to, to ransom notes. That's a very, very difficult thing for the country to do. But the president's going to exercise presidential leadership and try to prevail upon the Speaker of the House and the Republicans in the House to actually be thoughtful and reasonable and not to put the lives um, and the finances of Americans at risk. But is that the strategy here, just hoping that in the end, some reasonable, reasonable Republicans, as you say, will come to the table? Because right now, that doesn't seem likely to happen. Mitch McConnell's still aligned with Kevin McCarthy on this. And the what is the the plan here, because it just well, seems like the White House is waiting on Republicans to come around, which they have shown no signs hope, of doing. Hope, hope is never a strategy. Uh, there are always contingency plans. I'm not going to get ahead of the president of where he's going. But his message to the American public is that as the president, he needs to protect the health, well, so safety and welfare of the American people. This comes as separately in another House or another chamber on the Hill. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat, is threatening to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, which he helped write. He, he picked did. that title, as you know. He says that the administration, that y'all are trying to use the IRA to steer the U.S. quickly towards the clean energy transition and away from fossil fuels, that you're using the electric vehicle tax credits that they put in there in the wrong way. Is he wrong? Uh, well, let's just say we have, a di we have a difference of opinion about what it is that's happening, why it's happening, and how important it is. The climate crisis is an existential crisis. The Inflation Reduction Act, which he did help write and help pass, is the largest investment in protecting us from our client. I'm from Louisiana. When you think about Katrina, Rita, Ike, Gustav, the BP oil spill, when you think about the fires in, in the West, the, the lack of water, we've got a real problem on our hands, and we have to get to a clean energy economy sooner rather than later. The president and Senator Manchin right now on this particular issue have a difference of the speed, not really the direction. So uh, the Inflation Reduction Act also, by the way, had some significant health care provisions to save health care costs and lower the cost, especially for prescription drugs. So if you undo that bill, you actually are going to take away the ability to create high paying jobs in states like West Virginia and Kentucky and in Tennessee. And we think that's a bad idea. Do you think he's genuinely considering repealing that bill as he's threatened, or do you think it's more of a political play because he's also weighing whether or not to run for re-election? Well, I know Senator Manchin well. He's a good friend. He and the president have been, as you know, colleagues for a very, very long time, and you have to take Joe Manchin at his word. But his intention to do it is different from whether actually they can succeed in doing that. The position of the administration is the Inflation Reduction Act is the largest investment in climate reformation in the history of the world, and it's necessary to get there sooner rather than later in a balanced, thoughtful, common-sense way. The other Democrat on Capitol Hill who often causes some headaches for the White House is Senator Kirsten Sinema, obviously from Arizona. She made this comment as Title 42 is set to expire next week. Yep. Obviously, the border is not secure. Anyone with eyes can see that. And it would be most helpful if the administration would start by actually enforcing the laws that are on the books. I'll make a couple of points about that. First of all, when we talk about 
Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin. Always remember, that's on top of 50 Republicans or never supporting the administration ever. Um, and so it, it requires us to work with Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, who, as you know, uh, have been allies mostly. Um, the border is always been a challenge. The president wants to secure the border. Uh, but having a border-only approach to immigration doesn't work. We need a comprehensive uh, plan from Congress, which we have not had. As you know, the president uh, and the Department of Defense are deploying the National Guard to the border to help. Uh, and as we process people, once Title 42 goes away, we need to get it really kind of focused and, and in the place where it needs to be. And I should note, obviously, she switched her party. She's an independent now. Uh, when it comes to Title 42 expiring, though, is the administration prepared for that? Yeah, I think we are. You do? Um, but, it's a but it's a difficult problem. There's no question about it. This immigration uh, has been a complicated problem for America for a long time. Um, this is going to put more pressure on us. Uh, the administration, through the secretary of DHS, has been, DHS has been working on this. Uh, we have agents that have gone to the border to help with the Border Patrol agents. And, oh, by the way, uh, if we go into default or if the, if the Republicans get their way uh, with the cuts, they're actually going to cut a custom border patrol agents that's going to make the job much more difficult. Yeah, uh, that crisis on top of what we're already warning exactly. could happen with a default. Sure. Infrastructure. Yeah. That is why you're here in New York. That is obviously what your day-to-day -day role is, it. even though we've hit 20 other topics here. <laughs> that's all right. Um, how much money has actually gone out the door so far? Well, $210 billion has been sent out of the door. We have 25,000 projects that have been funded in some form or fashion in every community in the country. And so that's really exciting. Uh, for us. We continue to work hard with the governors and the mayors to make sure that we build projects really, really quickly. And so roads, bridges, airports, ports, waterways, making sure that we have clean air and safe water, and then preparing, as you said, for the clean energy economy that's coming really, really fast. It's working well. Mitchell and Drew, thanks for joining us it's here on thanks set for having me. while you're in New York. Appreciate your time. Thank you. The UK preparing to officially crown its new king tomorrow. This is the first coronation, of course, in seven decades. And for much of the world, it means the first time they'll ever see such an event. So what can you expect? We'll tell you next. Millions of people across the United Kingdom and the world preparing to celebrate, to watch the coronation of King Charles III, along with the coronation, of course, of Camilla, the queen consort, though from here on out, she's just the queen. The ceremony combining both this religious service, this ceremony steeped in medieval tradition, and plenty of pomp and pageantry takes place tomorrow at Westminster Abbey. And it is the first coronation in seven decades. He will only be the 40th reigning monarch to be crowned at Westminster Abbey since 1066. Joining us now, the host of BBC America, Sharon Carpenter, and CNN contributor, Trisha Goddard. Great to um, have you both with us this morning. I can hear the rain has just started behind you, so it feels sort of apropos yeah. as we're talking about, you know, sort of all things very British with the royal family. Um, Trisha, if, if I could begin with you. Perfect this timing. It is perfect timing. In this moment, it's interesting what the reaction has been. Somewhat mixed. There is so much anticipation. People haven't seen this in 70 years. And yet, there are questions. The younger generation specifically asking questions. What is the mood there this morning? Well, actually, I mean, there's tourists everywhere. Uh, tourists, uh, you know, 
this is a, a, a peak thing for tourism, a peak time of the year. But yeah, you're right. It, there has been a varied reaction. Uh, the fact that King Charles has been so inclusive and has different faiths represented, um, is, it speaks to the younger generation. But there has been some criticism. Historian David Starkey, for instance, suggested that the reason that the government isn't really on board is because Rishi Sunak, remember we have a Hindu prime minister, uh, Rishi Sunak, um, he's implying doesn't quite get the whole history because of the religion being different. You can hear the rain there over, you know, over and me, the thunder. Uh, yeah, which well. I have to say they are predicting for tomorrow, which might cancel the fly pass. But yes, there have been mixed reactions. Remember, King Charles is the first divorced king since Henry VIII. So as we look at all of this, it's interesting you brought up those comments that David Starkey uh, had made in response to the prime minister. What he said specifically was he's a man of immense talent, of extraordinary skill, but really not fully grounded in our culture. I mean, Sharon, he's basically yeah. saying you're just not British enough for me. King Charles is supposed exactly. to be the king of the United Kingdom. Of course, he's the he's the head of state for the Commonwealth, which represents a number of countries. Being inclusive here is not just about religion, but it's recognizing that this is a far more diverse country and Commonwealth than it has ever been. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've got, yeah. We've got a, what we've got Sadiq Khan, haven't we, as the mayor in yeah. London? Exactly. Um, we've got the first Muslim for, um, first minister in Scotland. Yeah. Um, you know, we we are a really diverse country. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the other things is uh, some of these Commonwealth nations who have the king as the head of state are looking to remove him. I know that Jamaica has been talking mm -hmm. about this. Uh, Belize has been talking uh, about this as well. Uh, also, one of the issues that King Charles is going to have to deal with moving forward is the monarchy's ties to the slave trade. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that has been making the headlines recently. King mm -hmm. Charles has said that he is going to open the Royal Archives for studies to be done and research to be done about those ties. So it's going to be interesting uh, what we find out. Yeah. So yeah, in, really in, and in terms of what we're watching for tomorrow, there are all of these efforts from King Charles to make this a more inclusive ceremony, part of which is including different faiths. There have been a lot made about would he be defender of the faith, being the Church of England, or defender of faiths. Uh, he has the UK's yeah. chief rabbi participating who's actually staying yes. at St. James's Palace so that he can walk because, of course, uh, it's the mm -hmm. Sabbath. So, Tricia, how, yeah. how inclusive is it actually going to be? Do you think he is fulfilling that promise as he needs to? Well, it, it, it's been King Charles's wish to do this, but you have to remember that he's not the one who's uh, organised absolutely everything. He has um, a Muslim peer, he has a Jewish peer, he has a Hindu uh, peer, um, all presenting, um, you know, uh, official artefacts, for instance. But there has been some talk about are they truly representative of their communities? Were they just picked because they're in the House of Lords? Um, well, I, on my other show, I had a lot of people phone in and say you know what it would have been better if you'd taken someone from the community but this is the problem when you try to please everyone it's it's really difficult you're you're not going to be um you know as successful as you you mm -hmm. hope you are going to be but sure. um you know we, we, it is a step in the right direction yeah and uh, i would like to add as well it, oh go ahead sorry go ahead 
Well, I was going to ask you about oh, the other thing, before we're like almost out of time. So I, I will yeah. say the other thing. Let's There's so much it. focus on not only Queen Camilla, right? And all of the pomp and the pageantry and the glitz and the jewels. But look, everybody wants to know what's going to happen with Harry. So we know he's attending. We don't know if yes. he has a role at this point. What is the sense of whether exactly. or not he will appear on the balcony? Because that moment will say a lot about not only this rain heading forward, but frankly about the family itself. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be the big moment. The balcony moment uh, is really the grand finale of Coronation Day. And King Charles is going to be taken to that balcony for the first time as monarch, uh, by the way. But everyone is going to be looking to see who's up there. And Charles, this sad. is going to be a tough decision for him. Is he going to go for only senior working members of the royal family to show this is a slimmed down monarchy that he's working on? Or is he going to go in the direction of family? We all know I, that I Harry hope, is I hope he does. I hope he does. He's a dad. Fiddle. Come on, uh, he's a dad. That's what I would he love. He is to a see. dad. Harry up there, standing with King Charles, with Queen yeah. Camilla, and with Prince William. Apparently, the two of them aren't even on speaking terms. Little tension terms there, at I'm the told. Little, I think little that would say this is a modern-day monarchy right there. It would yeah, be great I to would, see. We will be watching family. for that moment. I'm with you. I'm. I'm going for family. Bring everybody on the balcony. Yeah. Trisha, Sharon, family appreciate first. it. Enjoy the day tomorrow. Thank you. And of course, you can see all the action right here on CNN. The coronation of King Charles III. You can watch history in the making inside Westminster Abbey and, of course, all throughout up until that balcony moment. And afterwards, coverage begins tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. Eastern. Yeah, we'll be watching closely. Until then, we're also tracking this. A drug to fight obesity is getting so popular that the company making it is having trouble keeping up with demand. Plus, a Manhattan jury finds Ed Sheeran did not deliberately copy parts of Marvin Gaye's classic song, Let's Get It On. I'm obviously very happy with the outcome of the case, and it looks like I'm not having to retire from my day job after all. But at the same time, I'm unbelievably frustrated that basis claims like this are allowed to go to court at all. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Demand now outweighing supply when it comes to the popular obesity drug Wagovi. The drug's maker, Novo Nordisk, says it will temporarily limit some of the starter doses for new patients in the U.S. The reason? The company says it's having a tough time keeping up with demand. Joining us now is CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell. So what's going on? It's just too many people are taking this now because it's so popular? Yeah, Novo Nordisk says hundreds of thousands of U.S. patients are on this medicine, and it's tracking prescription growth, and it's just going faster than it can currently supply the drug. And so it says it's going to keep supplying it to the patients who are already on the medicine, who are at these sort of higher maintenance doses, but it's going to limit these lower doses where patients start out in order to try to just be able to keep up with who they're currently supplying. And they say this is going to last through September. And just so people are clear, too, this is Wegovi. So this is this is only approved as a weight lost drug for obesity. This is not, so it's not being taken away from diabetes patients, but Ozempic. Um, but is yeah. there a sense that this is actually going to work? I saw they even have an FAQ of why can celebrities get this, but I can't. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they are trying to increase capacity and they're even going to cut back on their marketing in order to try not to, you know, stimulate too much demand at this point. But the concern is that, you know, if patients can't get this to start on it, they might switch to trying to get the drugs elsewhere mm. through either medical tourism or compounding pharmacies or online. And doctors are warning, you've got to be really careful when you're going sort of outside the normal channels for these medicines. Yeah, make sure that you do actually get it from your physician. Right. That'd keep us updated. Let us know if their tactic does work. Yeah. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you. Guys. 
Well, for Ed Sheeran, uh, he's probably waking up a little happier this morning. A major victory for the singer-songwriter. Jury finding his hit song, Thinking Out Loud, did not infringe on the copyright of the classic Marvin Gaye slow jam, Let's Get It On. The British singer-songwriter said if he lost the case, he was going to quit music altogether. Sheeran said he actually missed his grandmother's funeral in Ireland because of this trial. After the verdict, he declared the ruling was an important step in protecting musicians and their art. I'm obviously very happy with the outcome of the case, and it looks like I'm not having to retire from my day job after all. But at the same time, I'm unbelievably frustrated that baseless claims like this are allowed to go to court at all. These chords are common building blocks, which were used to create music long before Let's Get It On was written, and will be used to make music long after we are all gone. Joining us now, the host of Boston Globe Today, Shagun Odolowu. Nice to see you this morning. Thank you. This is a big deal. Huge deal. What does it mean in the broader context, especially as we, you know, when it comes to more lawsuits like this? Because this wasn't the first time. No, and what we all need to understand is that a lot of popular music is built on the skeletons of songs past, right? Even sampling. But what happened here with Ed was they thought that the chord progression and the sound of um, you know, thinking out loud is the same as Let's Get It On with Marvin Gaye. And I think what really swayed it is Ed performed the song in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that might even be jury tampering because, <laughs> because if you're going to get a concert, it's really hard to, you know, vote against or to, you know, find against Ed in this. But what it can do is allow artists to, you know, to be free. We saw with Blurred Lines that when the gay family comes for you know, if they feel like you've infringed on their father's work or, you know, Marvin's work, they will be litigious. And in that case, it was pretty obvious. That I was going to say, that was, yes, yeah. this you couldn't, I couldn't hear it in that way in the well, Ed Sheeran song, I have to say, the way I could. I, I could, lines. though. I could. I mean, on the, on the Joe Budden podcast, they played them side by side, mm -hmm. and then they, they mixed them together. And you can hear similarities. But Ed, again, playing it in, in the courtroom basically said, well, look, like these songs, ha lots of songs have these chord progressions. You can't penalize everybody. So, again, I was torn. Ed Sheeran's song Perfect was the theme music to my wedding. Oh. Let's Get It On was the theme to my honeymoon. So I was torn <laughs> between who to vote for, but I'm happy. I'm happy that Ed won because I like his okay, music. Okay, well, there's that. I learned a lot in the last 10 seconds. Um, I don't even so know if I should follow up on that. Like, I'm just <laughs> like. Do you want to just end on that note? No, we're just wearing, like, no, it's, it's springtime. Look, we've got, we've got bright uh, colors. Love on, is in so, the yeah. air. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wait, but yeah. Can I ask you on a serious note? Because Ed Sheeran, when he came out and was, you know, saying he lamenting that he missed his grandmother's funeral because of this, he seemed to be phrasing it or framing it as like a shakedown. He was saying this is an attempt to shake the piggy bank and just to get mm. money out of him. Is well, that? Well, there, there, there can be truth in that. We saw even with the Gwyneth Paltrow trial, right, that mm -hmm. if you're a celebrity and in the way society is right now, you're a bit of a target. Yeah. And anything that can, you know, get some money out of you, people are going to try and do that. So Ed winning kind of, you know, puts a wall up to says, look, celebrities are going to fight back too. They're not just going to start writing blank checks. Gwyneth Paltrow, not going to write a blank check. Let's take it to court. If you really believe that you did nothing wrong, we're, we're you know, we're, we're, we're going to use what, what's available to us and, and try it out. Because I guess the thinking is they're, Super wealthy. If they could just settle this, they'll just do that instead of actually going to court and fighting it. Easier out. to yeah. make it go and away. And the song had been out for a long time, right? It's one thing to like you hear the song immediately. Yeah, like, you're like, whoa, 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 this is wrong. It's another thing where you hear the song, you let it get super popular, let the artist make a lot of money, 
and then you come, then that does look like a shakedown. Yeah, it raises questions. It does. Great to see you and to learn so much <laughs> I more. Mean, I mean, did you ask? I just love that you just said all that about your honeymoon. <laughs> oh, listen, this is what love does. Love, love, make, what doesn't they say? Love makes all of us fools. So, yeah. Love it. You're no fool. place to end. <laughs> Glad to have you on set today. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> Thanks, Shagoon. Also this morning, as we are tracking this story out of the Supreme Court, more and more scrutiny. It seems like every single day, Justice Clarence Thomas now facing more ethics questions about his ties to a Republican mega donor. There's a new report just out this morning from The Washington Post that brings up new questions about payments that his wife received from a conservative nonprofit. Plus, federal prosecutors in the Mar-a-Lago investigation have obtained the cooperation of an insider who worked for Trump at his resort, according to The New York Times. We're going to take a deeper dive into both these reports next. iconic American product at the center of tens of thousands of lawsuits. On the next installment of The Whole Story, CNN's Pamela Brown investigates the claims that have been made by thousands of women and men who now blame Johnson & Johnson's now discontinued talc baby powder for their cancer. It started in spring and summer. I was starting to feel like I wanted to have kids. So I saw a doctor and she told me, yeah, we should do your follicle count. And the next day, um, I got the results. It just said, yeah, your count is fine, but you have malignant masses. Yeah, so that's leaving Sloan Kettering. And then this is it healing up. And then chemotherapy. I mean, you get a mesothelioma diagnosis, right? And you don't understand how would I have asbestos. Everywhere that I've gone, I've always had some Johnson & Johnson baby powder. I just never imagined that something that you would use on babies was unsafe. And Pamela Brown joins us now with more on her exclusive reporting. Pam, I mean, this story is just... It's scary because so many people trusted Johnson & Johnson mm -hmm. and trusted this product. And, you know, there was a big investigation in The New Yorker a few months ago also into this. And I'm so glad that you looked into this. What did you find? So, yeah, this this is a story that's been going on for years, right? Uh, Johnson & Johnson being sued by plaintiffs who claim that its talc-based baby powder caused their cancer. And so what we wanted to do was actually dig deeper and look at some of those claims, look at the science, and follow some women, like you just saw, Lisa Follander, um, and follow the women who are suing this multi-billion dollar iconic American company. They are just some of the 40,000. It was really fascinating when you peel back the layers. Both sides are adamant that what the, the women that we spoke to are adamant that the baby powder caused their cancer, and Johnson & Johnson vehemently denies that, saying our product is safe, the science shows it. Even though in 2019, uh, the FDA found in one sample um, asbestos, Johnson & Johnson counters, while well, we did our own independent testing, more than 150 tests, and there was no asbestos, and the lab was contaminated. And so what we do is we examine the claims uh, we followed these women, and I sat down with Allison Brown, an attorney for Johnson & Johnson, who has defended this company in court. Here's what she had to say. So, I mean, Johnson & Johnson is at the center of this, and so it is essential to hear 
from this lawyer who has been defending Johnson & Johnson in court. The first thing that is most important for me that people know about these cases is that they are doing an enormous disservice to a very important issue of women's health. What we can say with 100% certainty is that we have never confirmed a finding of asbestos in any product that has been sold and that decades of scientific testing and study have shown that our talc is safe and does not cause cancer. And so Allison Brown argues that th the blame is on these plaintiffs' attorneys for why there are so many lawsuits against Johnson & Johnson. She says they're money-hungry, and with their advertising, they've lured people in, even though she claims the product is safe. Now, of course, the plaintiffs and their attorneys argue it's not. Uh, they have their evidence that they show that we're going to put—that um, you're going to see in this documentary. But right now, Johnson & Johnson, it has offered $8.9 billion uh, to these plaintiffs. They're trying to settle. They say some of the plaintiffs are on board, but some aren't, and they still want to have their day in court, including mm -hmm. some of the women we spoke to. I mean, it is fascinating and so interesting to hear from that attorney, from her take on it. Really looking forward to the report this mm -hmm. weekend to hear from more of those women. Pamela, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, you can see Pam's full report on a new episode of The Whole Story. It airs this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Good morning, everyone. Top of the 8 a.m. hour. There's a major development overnight happening in Ukraine. Russia's mercenary boss making a surprise announcement in a video that he is pulling his troops out of a crucial battle. Coming up, his angry, vitriolic message to Russia's military leaders. The New York Times reporting the Justice Department has an insider witness who worked at Mar-a-Lago as they investigate former President Trump's handling of top-secret documents. Also, just about 30 minutes from now, the April jobs report is going to be released. It could help. It could also hurt generate markets as America's banking crisis is flaring up once again. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Welcome back. This morning, the Ukrainian military says that we could be witnessing a turning point in this war. This is really interesting. The head of Russia's Wagner mercenary group says he is pulling his troops out of that key Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. Russia has been trying to take it for months. Ukraine has been pushing back for months. Russia has suffered staggering losses as a part of this battle. The furious Wagner chief is blasting Russian military leaders, accusing them of denying ammunition from his fighters. He released a video overnight as he is standing next to a pile of dead bodies, dead mercenaries. I do want to warn you, we have blurred this video of Yevgeny Prigozhin, but it is still quite graphic. These men here who died today are Wagner PMC. Their blood is still fresh. You think you are the masters of this life? You think you can dispose of their lives? You think because you have warehouses full of ammunition that you have that right? Prigozhin says his mercenaries are leaving in five days. Of course, remains to be seen if that actually happens. But if they do, losing this battle could be a major setback for Russian forces as they are bracing for an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. CNN's chief international security correspondent, Nick Payton Walsh, is live for CNN in Zaporizhia, eastern Ukraine. Nick, of course, the methods here from Prigozhin are not new, neither is, you know, how blunt and outspoken he is. But what is significant to you about this video that he posted overnight? 
the fact that they're saying they will leave in five days. They've never said that before. They've threatened that it might compromise their position. For about almost a week now, we've been seeing these messages from Yevgeny Prigozhin, and it comes after people had thought perhaps his long-term rift as the head of the Wagner mercenary group with the Russian defense military establishment, the ministry, the top brass, might have begun to be healing. He's long been complaining they haven't got the artillery shells they need to keep their positions, but this is utterly stark. That expletive-laden video, he's done that before in front of corpses to try and ask for more ammunition, but quite a different tone. And this would be, frankly, a staggering gift to the Ukrainian forces if indeed Wagner was able to pull its forces back. Withdrawing from a city like this under fire is exceptionally difficult at the best of times, particularly in this case, it might appear, if the Russian defense establishment didn't want you to pull your forces back. So how and when this happens mid-next week will be particularly complex and interesting to see play out. But it is, as I say, a gift to the Ukrainian forces, informationally alone, ahead of their counteroffensive. For Russia to be saying it's going to pull what may be about half of its forces back from this key symbolic city that's been slogged over brutally over the entire winter, I mean, it's extraordinary. What's that going to do to Russian morale, even the suggestion that it might need to happen? These information uh, bits will float out across Russia's front lines. Russian troops will hear it, and they'll beginning to wonder quite what's happening at the heart of the Kremlin. Now, I should hold out point out here, Yevgeny Prigozhin has made false statements in the past and tried to play sides off each other, but this is remarkable, and it's a second sign of extraordinary weakness at the heart of the Kremlin after they had to admit or chose to admit that drones had attacked the Kremlin just 48 hours ago. Now their military is seen as having an extraordinary rift, and you have to wonder quite what is going through Vladimir Putin's mind ahead of Wednesday's important Victory Day celebrations, next week's important Victory Day celebrations. A startling situation for us to be in, Caitlin. Yeah, I was just going to say it's so notable that this deadline that he's offering this five days would come right after that major holiday there in Russia. We'll see if they actually do pull out. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you. New this morning, the Washington Post reporting a high-profile conservative judicial activist, Leonard Leo, arranged for the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, to be paid tens of thousands of dollars in 2012 while also making it clear there should be no mention of her. So according to the Post, this is how all of this happened. Judicial activist Leonard Leo advises a network of conservative nonprofits, including the Judicial Education Project. So he wanted Kellyanne Conway to give Ginny Thomas, quote, another 25K with, quote, no mention of Ginny, of course. Well, on that day, Conway's company billed the Judicial Education Project for $25,000. That money was for Ginny Thomas. It's unclear exactly what she did for Conway's polling company or for the Judicial Education Project, but that nonprofit did file a brief in Shelby v. Holder in 2012 where the court invalidated key parts of the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. Justice Thomas wrote an opinion in that case that was consistent with the nonprofit's position. CNN's Joan Biskupic joining us now. So Joan, what, what do you make of all of this? Good morning, Erica. You know, this is yet one more piece that we're finding out of the very secretive world of money and influence with Supreme Court justices. But I do want to say this one seems very different from what we've heard about in recent days and weeks involving Harlan Crow. But before I get to that, let's at least say um, what Leonard Leo uh, how he responded to the Washington Post. He said the work Ginny did here did not involve anything connected with either the court's business or other legal issues. Knowing how disrespectful, malicious, and gossipy people can be, I have always tried to protect the privacy of Ginny Thomas and Justice Thomas. So that's how he responded.
good. And I, I do have to say, uh, I know that, um, Erica, that Justice Thomas and Leonard Leo go all the way back to like 1990 when they were both uh, working at the D.C. Circuit, Justice Thomas as a lower court judge then, and uh, Leonard Leo as a law clerk to another judge on that court. So they have a deep, long-standing friendship. They have always they just always been tight. But uh, as much as that's different from the evolving friendship of Harlan Crow, and as much as the disclosure requirements might have been different, and I'll just mention those real quick, you know, with Harlan Crow, he gave gifts to the justice and the justice's family that arguably and probably should have been reported in some way. There's a question of whether this money uh, for Ginny Thomas should have been disclosed anywhere. And frankly, on the justice's financial disclosure reports, there isn't a place for specific amounts of money that go to a spouse. So setting that aside, I just want to say that the larger context here is what do these people think they're buying? You know, even though there's some friendship involved in both of these cases, it raises a very real question of whether these people of great wealth and influence think that they're buying something or getting something from the justices, the justice. And it, it's certainly a suggestion that out there for the public. And I think that is what's concerning. Now, the case that's mentioned here, the Shelby County versus Holder case, there is no way in the world that Clarence Thomas was going to vote any way different than he did on that case, that very important voting rights case when a, where a narrow majority rolled back significant voting rights protections nationwide. So, you know, you, you don't know you know, a connection there is not so obvious, but we don't know about other connections in other cases. And the overriding theme, I have to say, Erica, is we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know what these people think they might be buying or right. getting with the influential money here. It's such a great point. Joan, really appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. There's also been a new turn in the investigation into former President Trump's handling of classified documents, with the New York Times now reporting that federal prosecutors have secured the confidential cooperation of a person who has worked at Mar-a-Lago in the past. The insider's identity not yet known, but this new report says the Justice Department is looking into whether Trump ordered a box of sensitive materials moved out of a storage room. It comes on the heels of CNN's own exclusive reporting that prosecutors have recently issued several subpoenas to the Trump Organization seeking additional surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago. According to The Times, prosecutors have questioned a number of witnesses about gaps in that footage, why those gaps exist. Joining us now, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, CNN's political commentator and, of course, the former White House communications director under Trump, and Ellie Honig, CNN's senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Ellie, what is the significance for Jack Smith, the special counsel here, that they do have someone who worked at Mar-a-Lago cooperating. Yeah, it's all about cooperators when you're talking about feds making cases. If you watch TV shows, you would think all cases get solved with ballistics and DNA and sort of lab magic. The reality is, as a federal prosecutor, you live and die with cooperators. You need someone on the inside. If you want to get inside Mar-a-Lago and what happened there, you need someone who is inside Mar-a-Lago. Now, there's a couple big questions. Is this a cooperator who's pled guilty to being part of some crime and has an agreement to testify in exchange for consideration. That's what we would consider a capital C cooperator. Or is this somebody who was not part of criminal activity who's just providing information? And second of all, how much does this person know? Sometimes cooperators can connect the dots. Sometimes they can give you the whole story. There's also the question of how important is this information coming out in terms of how other potential witnesses yeah. may take it. Obviously, how Trump world will take it. We probably have a sense of that. You have a sense, obviously. 
But that impact can't be ignored. It can't be. And I think anytime someone comes forward, there's pressure on others within Trump world who may know information to decide in that moment, which camp are you going to be in? Are you going to stick by the president as his former valet, uh, Walt Nawa has? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to come forward to avoid risking any kind of, you know, potential conflict that you could get into? What I think is interesting, and this is my non-legal, more political <laughs> take on it, is this this case is ultimately, I think, going to come down to the obstruction. Um, because now that Vice President Pence, the current president, have also had some issues with mishandling classified documents. It's not clear cut just about simply the documents. Mm -hmm. I always have to state, had I done this with documents when I was in the federal government, I would likely be in prison. <laughs> it, is a, it is a breach beyond what we anybody in senior government should be doing. But now it comes down to the intent. Were they trying to hide these documents? Were they trying to mislead or keep the documents from NARA, from the Department of Justice? And that's where it's going to be these, these, you know, individuals who had actual visibility into it that are going to be able to connect those dots. And that's why this is so interesting when it talks about the surveillance footage and the questions of, are there intentional gaps in the footage? Was it just a technical problem? But Ellie, one of the, the two paragraphs that stood out the most to me in the New York Times reporting, it says, one of the previously unreported subpoenas to the Trump Organization sought records about his dealings with the Saudi-backed professional golf, of course, live the golf tour that they have. It's holding tournaments at several of those courses. We've seen that. The New York Times says it's unclear what bearing the relationship with Live Golf would have on this broader investigation, but it does suggest they are examining certain elements of his business. How do you take that? Yeah, that jumped off the page to me when I saw that, because I think it's fair to assume that Live Golf has nothing to do with moving boxes of documents around Mar-a-Lago. And so that tells me that the scope of the special counsel's investigation has expanded and is getting into the financial dealings that the Trump organization had with Live Golf and potentially others. And that's really important because if you look historically at special counsels, Robert Mueller wanted to expand his investigation to get into the financial dealings and was told no. But if you look back at Ken Starr, that started off as Whitewater and expanded from there. So how much leash is this special counsel going to be given? But this tells me that they're now beyond Mar-a-Lago. They're looking into broader, broader topics. It, what does that do in terms of timing? Oh, it expands the time frame for sure. But if I was if I was handling the prosecution here, I, I would put things in different buckets. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't hold up a Mar-a-Lago case while I was making a financial case. And I want to be careful in saying this because it's pure speculation, but you can't rule out that the documents investigation and the tie to the live investigation could be related to classified documents related to the Saudis. Mm -hmm. That That's was always something that was yeah. floated, yeah. but... Um, we don't know that. I will probably never find out specifically what's in these classified documents, but that's a thread that may be being pulled. Yeah, which would get into the finances yeah. directly, right? Yeah. To your point, we, we may never find out what's ex what specifically is in those documents, but there is a good chance we'll have a broader sense of what they may have covered, right? We could get some, depending well, on what happens with this investigation, whether there's a trial, if there are charges, if there's a trial. Right. More of that could come. I, th I think if there's no charges, we probably won't find out much right. more. But if there are charges based on these documents, they're going to have to show what these documents right. are because it's going to get to the intent. Why would Trump have kept these? Why would he have moved them around? The, right. And there's a vital public interest there, even to yeah. high level, be able to say what's exactly. Them. And you mentioned Walt Nauda. He is the former valet who now was in the White House, now went to work for him. One thing that they talked about here, and I'm also curious, your thoughts on this is um, the way they pursued him. Could they use the carrot mm -hmm. or stick strategy? Mm -hmm. Carrot basically being like, please help us out with this, blah, blah, blah. But instead, it says that they took the stick strategy, threatening him, essentially saying that if you don't help, you could potentially be found guilty. And the New York Times reporting is that they don't feel like he was fully forthcoming with them, did not give them a totally thorough explanation for that, uh, and that he's basically not talking to them anymore. 
Well, and this is a pattern within Trump world and something that Donald Trump is very good at is making people stay loyal to him. And he can create financial incentives to do that. He can provide counsel to people to make them want to kind of stay on his side in investigations. My sense is that's probably where Walt came down in this. You're kind of up against, do I want to cooperate with the DOJ, rack up a bunch of legal bills I have to pay myself or try to stick it out with Donald Trump? My caution would be, A, first and foremost, always do the right thing. But B, he will hang you out to dry eventually. We've seen this enough times with the former president. So I, I just don't know that that's the long-term strategy. It, it's scary turning on Donald Trump. I mean, yeah. Alyssa Farrah can tell us all the ways <laughs> that a person gets sort of raked over the coals if they do that. But if you're DOJ and you're going to use the stick approach, you're going to say, you better tell us the truth or we're going to charge you. You better be ready to use that yeah. stick, right? So you can't threaten that and then let a person give you a half-truth and then do nothing about it because then you're going to end up with no testimony. You're not going to have your case made. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Ellie, Alyssa, thank you both for joining us this morning. Happy Friday. <laughs> Police in California have arrested a former UC Davis student after a string of deadly stabbings near campus. We're going to get you a live report from California. Next. And coming up, we're also going to talk to the New York City public advocate and a former New York Police Department officer about what happened when a man was killed on a subway after he was put in a chokehold by another rider. We spoke to a friend of the victim last night. And uh, my heart bleeds that our human species can still treat each other like that. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Police in California have arrested a former UC Davis student after that rash of stabbings that happened near campus. Of course, those stabbings, two people ultimately were killed, one injured. The sheriff's office has released this photo of the suspect. His name is 21-year-old Carlos Dominguez. They believe he is responsible for all three stabbings, all connected over the last week. CNN's Veronica Miracle is following this investigation closely. She joins us live this morning from Davis, California. Veronica, what are the next questions that investigators have here for this 21-year-old suspect? Well, Caitlin, they haven't released any information about a motive, um, and they also haven't released any information, and they're still trying to figure out if he knew the victims, how he was connected, or was this all random? Police yesterday at their press conference really thanking the community for their help in making this arrest possible. They say two days ago they got a cluster of phone calls, and they say all 15 of those phone calls were about people who said that they saw a man with the same description of the suspect that police were searching. For. They discovered 21-year-old Carlos Dominguez at a local park where that second homicide took place. The first homicide happened last Thursday, where a man was stabbed at a park near UC Davis. The second one happened on Saturday, where a UC Davis student was killed at a different park. And then on Monday, a third stabbing took place. That woman is in critical condition, and this happened near campus. Now, when police were asked if uh, when he was discovered, if he was potentially searching for his next victim, they said they don't know, but they did find a large knife on him. Another interesting and very disturbing note to add is that he is a former UC Davis student. As of last week, he was apparently a junior who separated in their terms from the university due to academic reasons. And that happened two days before the first murder took place. He has been charged with two counts of homicide and one count of attempted homicide and could be arraigned as early as Monday. Caitlin. Veronica Miracle in Davis, California. Thank you. Protesters in New York City are calling for an arrest after a homeless man was put into a chokehold on the subway and died. Neely. Justice for Jordan Neely. Justice for Jordan Neely. 
Demands there, as you hear, for justice for 30-year-old Jordan Neely. Last night on CNN, Neely's friend, Moses Harper, said she is devastated by his death. I was disturbed. I was disgusted that such barbarism could take place. And uh, my heart bleeds that our human species can still treat each other like that. So on Monday, Neely got on a train going uptown. Witnesses say he was acting erratically, never got aggressive. At one point, a man came up to him, put him in a chokehold, pinned him to the ground. Another passenger eventually joins him. We don't know how long they were there, how long they held him there, rather. Video of parts of the incident, though, that video lasts for more than four minutes. Eventually, Neely stops moving. He was later pronounced dead at a hospital. We should note CNN has not independently confirmed what happened leading up to the incident. I do want to bring in, though, now New York City public advocate Jamani Williams and the policy director of criminal justice and civil liberties at the R Street Institute, Jillian Snyder, who's also a retired NYPD officer. It's good to have both of you with us this morning. So, Jamani, you've called. You want charges to be brought immediately. You put out a lengthy statement here. Mayor Adams is saying the investigation needs to be allowed to proceed first. We saw some of those protests What do you say to Mayor Adams this morning? Well, so first, the baseline that we know, uh, there was a homeless man uh, that uh, was talking about his needs. He was choked to death. That is what's happened. Um, I do agree about an investigation. Mm -hmm. I think that should start with charges. Uh, Lots of things can happen after the charges. But when you have a man who was killed on video by another man, uh, there should be charges that are put out there, and I think it's because who was killed that hasn't happened. I also am concerned that we have a mayor that has yet to say that vigilantism is not what we want. I'm also concerned that we have a governor that hasn't made those type of statements, even previously saying she's making laws around bail based on what she sees on the paper, not on what's actually happening. So I'm concerned that our executives are creating an environment where these things can continue. As a former New York Police Department officer, how do you see it when it comes to this subject of vigilantism and people stepping in uh, in a situation like what we saw here? I don't know if I would call it vigilantism. Again, I wasn't on the subway. We're still learning as things unfold. I don't know what the perception of fear of the individuals who were in the subway car was. I do not know what the individuals who held Mr. Neely down, I don't know what they were thinking. So again, I don't want to call it vigilantism. Mm -hmm. I want to say it was an attempt to subdue someone who, yes, was mentally ill, was homeless, who was definitely displaying that he needed stuff and he wasn't getting what he needed. So I think we really need to see all this pans out. There's also this larger conversation, right? We've been talking here in New York City. There's been so much talk about, is it safe on the subway? Is it not? You know, I did some digging into this last year. And when you look at the statistics, the statistics are one thing, but it's how people feel. And there was this effort. We're going to uh, we're going to tackle mental health. We're going to put more officers down there in the subway stations to help work on mental health. Not a lot has happened since then. Is there any sense that you're seeing that things are changing in terms of not only how people experiencing a mental health crisis or homelessness are being treated and helped in the city, but also how the residents of New York City are addressing it? Because that's part of it, too. So Jordan Neely would have been failed in the city and the state and how we do uh, 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 mental health now, Mm -hmm. just as he was failed the previous years. I do want to make clear that you can say vigilantism shouldn't be happening while saying you're not sure what happened here. Both of those things can happen at the same time, and we need to hear that. But I also want to be clear, um, someone assisting law enforcement has always happened. That's always happened. Mm -hmm. Here we have someone that, by some accounts, wasn't just holding someone down. They had them in a chokehold for 15 minutes. Jordan Neely was choked to death. 
That's what happened. And we should call out his name, and I want to respect his humanity. Mm -hmm. We also, I just passed a bill thanks to the city council uh, called the Homelessness uh, Bill of Rights. What we didn't put in there is the right not to be choked to death uh, on a subway car because we didn't think we had to. We want to make sure that people's humanities are respected yeah. and that we're saying things that don't cause the type of vigilantism that we don't want to see. And one thing to note is that the person who did this, who has been questioned and was released, is a former Marine. John Miller, our chief national or law enforcement analyst, was saying yesterday that a chokehold like this is part of their training force in a very different scenario. But he also reported <clears throat> that Neely, which obviously this Marine would not have known this, had 42 arrests and also had been three assaults between 2019 and 2021 on the subway for unprovoked attacks in the subway on females. How does that factor into how this is viewed? It shouldn't, because at the time of the incident, no one knew Mr. Neely's background. No right. one knew he had any kind of criminal history. Again, we could speculate now, oh, he, you know, had issues. He had 42 arrests. He was charged with assault on the subway system. But again, that's all after the fact. So I don't think that should be weighed in right now. And one other thing, do you, what do you th make of what we just learned that Thomas Kediff, who ran against Alvin Bragg for the, in the latest district attorney election, is now representing this former Marine. Do you read anything into that? I think that he does need representation because, as public advocate Williams said, <clears throat> charges may be brought. Um, the DA's office and the New York City Police Department are very active in their investigation. They're seeking witnesses. They're seeking people to provide video surveillance. I know there's very limited footage from what we know now, but in order for them to bring charges, and we have to remember, charges may not have been brought because of New York State's discovery law. Once the DA files charges, they have to then arraign and subsequently indict this individual very quickly. Quickly, um, because they do have the right to a speedy trial. So I've speculated that that might be why they have not brought any charges yet. But the, the, and that may be true. That the, I always think about the same set of circumstances and switch it. What if it was the black homeless man who had choked to death a white Marine because he was scared? We'd probably be having this conversation with him with charges sitting on Rikers Island. And so we want to make sure that the laws are being applied properly. We also want to make sure that we are continuing to respect the humanity of homeless people who are, have mental health issues like Jordan Neely. We have a, a situation where that is not what is what's happening. We're spending more time feeding the fear. As you mentioned, uh, the statistics bear something else out. But you want people to be safe and feel safe. And if yeah. you're not feeling safe, that is a real thing that we have to address. But we have to say you cannot choke people to death on the train. And that doesn't seem to be coming from our top executive leaders. And that's very concerning to me. Yeah, it's such an important conversation. I'm really glad that both of you were able to be here this morning. We'll obviously continue to follow it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you, Jillian. Thank you, Jumani. Thank you. I want to show you now uh, some video. This is the father of a young baseball player. There you go. Something to be proud of, Dad. Sucker punching the umpire. So what set him off? Jeez. Stay with us. You know, the guy's not even facing him because he's a coward. Um, and then he just leaves. A Florida man has been charged after punching an umpire last month at a high school baseball game. So here you see 41-year-old Jorge Aponte Gonzalez as he walks toward the field, proceeds to punch the 63-year-old disabled umpire, knocks him out. This happened April 18th. He was arrested Wednesday. Gonzalez's son is one of the players. Joining us now from Miami, CNN correspondent Carlos Suarez. I mean, this is just, if this doesn't fit the bill for why would parents do this, I'm not quite sure what does, Carlos. 
Yeah, Erica, so according to the Osceola County Sheriff, there was an issue between the umpire and the son of that father. Uh, apparently, the player was making some disruptions. He was saying a couple things on the field. And so at some point, the umpire tells the kid, look, really, you should tone things down. You're being disruptive. And the two of them, they go back and forth. It's at some point after that that, according to the sheriff, uh, 41-year-old George Gonzalez, as you see in that piece of surveillance video, walks up to the umpire and hits hits him, knocks him out cold. Apparently, this is not the first time that Mr. Gonzalez has been disruptive at a baseball game. That, at least according to the sheriff, he's apparently had issues at other games. The sheriff also talked about the fact that, that Gonzalez, he apparently showed zero remorse about what happened in the video. You can see him just walking off shortly after that incident. Here is what the sheriff said. He's basically laughing because I told him you're being arrested. Um, because I'm being arrested for defending my kid. It's not funny. And this is not his first time. I've heard that he's gone to other, like a Harmony game in another school and, and causes a, a, a disruption. However, it never got to this level where um, he actually struck someone. Um, and then after he strikes him, you know, the guy's not even facing him because he's a coward. Um, and then he just leaves. Again, it is still unclear at this hour exactly why the umpire and that player were going back and forth. However, uh, you can imagine there's really not much of an excuse for why an adult would do this to an umpire in front of a group of high school baseball players. Uh, Gonzalez, he was uh, released on about $1,500 bond, and he is facing a single count of battery on a sports official as well as disrupting a school function. Oof. Erica? Carlos, appreciate it. Thank you. All right, a lighter moment now. Maybe not so light, it's about pasta. Puzzling pasta <laughs> mystery in New Jersey. According to WABC, more than 500 pounds of pasta wasted, dumped into the woods last week in Old Bridge, New Jersey. After the Al Dante discovery was made, two public works employees cleaned it all up in less than an hour. No word on how exactly they cleaned it up. Residents are pointing to issues, though, with bulk garbage pickup within the town. Some of the locals say they know who did it, but they refuse to know them, which I love. It's, this is fascinating Story to you. Time. First of all, to cook that much pasta and then to bring it somewhere and dump it, it just, I'm very curious as to the train of thought here. Like, oh, I have a good idea. Hey, let's cook up 500 pounds of pasta and then leave it in the woods. That'll show them. Do animals eat pasta? Yeah, with no they sauce. They do now. <laughs> no, you need sauce on it. Yeah, I mean, who's going to... They must have put something, otherwise it would have all stuck together in the pot. How do you clean up all of that from the woods? Maybe you bring in the animals. Do animals eat pasta? I mean, my dog would probably eat like, it. Maybe not all cafe? of it, but yeah, I don't think they're that picky. Okay, on a more serious <laughs> note. All right, let's talk jobs. The Labor Department just releasing the April jobs report. It could help or hurt jittery markets already on the edge about the security of regional banks. So what did we see? Stick with us. We're going to break it down next. to see a new data from the Labor Department showing that the U.S. economy added 253,000 jobs in April. The Federal Reserve obviously keeping a very close eye on this report. So we have our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, back with us. Also, Phil Mattingly, our chief White House correspondent. More clarity? Yeah, hiring picked up. I mean, this is a strong, resilient job market. And the unemployment rate fell to 3.4 percent, going back to where it was 
in January. That's a historically low number. 3.4%, my God, that's full employment. That, yeah. that on paper should mean that anybody who wants a job has a job. What I can tell you is that bosses, you know, they can't find the workers in some cases. We have been seeing layoffs in tech and finance. So that is really happening. But overall, taken all together here, you've got hiring picking up to 253,000 in the month. And the unemployment rate is still very, very low. Leisure and hospitality is still adding back a bunch of jobs. Professional and business services adding jobs as well. I mean, again, defying all these headlines right. of tech layoffs and, uh, and layoffs in, in the financial sector. And honestly, just so resilient a year into all of these rate hikes. I mean, it's, it's a little surprising. February and March revised down a little bit, but the average of the past six months, 290,000 jobs added. In normal times, we'd be screaming from the rooftops right. about how strong that labor market is. So this is a little below that average, but more than anybody thought. Except for Goldman Sachs, they said it would be 250. I feel, and this is probably the same, like on a monthly basis, on this morning at 8.30 a.m., I get the DOL or the Labor Department release, and every single time, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, I know. Like the durability of the market, the durability of hiring, um, the ability for the U.S. economy to stay on the track that it's on, given, I think, the speed and the velocity, how the Fed has operated, Mm -hmm. but all the other dynamics that are around. Two things. One, uh, it's remarkable. And I don't think there's a ton of precedent for coming out of a crisis, Mm -hmm. uh, doing all the emergency response, and then being able to maintain on the back end when everybody's been predicting a recession for, what, the better part of the last year? This is the longest recession watch I have ever, I mean, a year and a half we've been talking about Yeah, no, like pack a lunch in a cot, because you're just (laughs) going to be hanging out. But but I also think it it underscores the moment we're in, which is that no one really understands exactly what's happening from a data perspective right now. And and at the same time as kind of everyday Americans feel unsettled and unsure about where things are, um, this is a really, really one fascinating from an intellectual perspective mm-hmm. kind of moment, but also uh, I think an unsettling one to some degree because we're not sure what this because means going no forward. Because there's no handbook, right? There's no, right. there's no path to follow. It's it's always interesting to me too that the sectors and the fact that we're continuing to see growth in leisure and hospitality, mm-hmm. no matter how concerned people are, the fact that they these sectors are still hiring, people are going out and spending money on those experiences. That says something. Yeah. And uh, coming out of the COVID crouch, you know, and wanting to buy different things, experiences and buy different kinds. You know, everybody bought two sofas and five pairs of pajamas. And then now they're not doing that anymore. They're they're spending money on other things. But the consumer has been really, really strong and driving so much of that. And you can see that in the kinds of sectors that we've been watching there. There was a Gallup poll, though, that showed almost half of Americans are worried about their Mm -hmm. money. And I think that's kind of interesting. That's because of the bank, you know, the bank crisis and that. I'm not going to call it a crisis, the bank stress that we've yes. seen. Uh, and so people say they're not feeling very, uh, you know, very confident about things, but they keep spending their money. And there is still broadly hiring. I mean, I was looking at the 2019 numbers before I came out here. There maybe was one or two months in 2019 that saw a month like this, you know, and that was considered a, a strong economy. So this is still a strong, uh, resilient labor market. And wages up 4.4%. That was stronger. Now, that's bad for, from the Fed point of view because they would like to see a cooling off of wages so it doesn't yeah. stoke inflation. Obviously, the White House is watching this. Mitch Landry was just here, was telling us they'd be watching very closely to see what happened at 8.30. How do they take a report like this? And with what the numbers that we're seeing from Americans actually are and how yeah. they feel about it versus what we're seeing in the actual numbers. And there's, two, there's two pieces to it, right? Look, we keep telling you the economy is still humming along. Please believe us. And I think this will only contribute to the long-held frustration, as per you, you've heard about and known for the better part of the last couple of years, that people don't understand what they've done, how they've done it, and why it's had an effect. Um, now, to be fair, there's a dislocation for a reason or a dissonance for a reason between numbers and what uh, mm-hmm. the American people are feeling, and maybe they're something to do with that. But I think the reality is if you're at the White House, you're looking at this and you're saying, we told you. 
Yeah. We told you, and it's staying that way when everybody's predicting otherwise. That's a good, good moment for them. 3.4% unemployment rate after a year of rate hikes and all, you know. I mean, 253. The, I mean, wow. the expectations by 7,000. Like, it's wow. wild. We're, we're going to eke out. For we're going to yeah, let you guys do that because we're going to get in trouble <laughs> because we have to pay some bills here. So we're going to take a little break. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Moving on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Just ahead, a new HBO documentary takes a really looks at race and racism through the eyes of mixed race children and families in America. It's a great conversation. W. Kamau Bell joins us next. HBO documentary explores race and racism through a unique lens, the eyes of mixed race children and families in America. The HBO original documentary film, 1000% Me, Growing Up Mixed, explores what it means to be of mixed heritage in today's America, where race is increasingly a divisive issue. Take a listen. I get everything but what I am, pretty much. Every single day. Just because we live in a diverse community does not mean that racism and all that doesn't happen. A high percentage of interracial couples have no idea what the experience is for this child that they brought into the world. Is there anything you think us non-mixed race people need to know about mixed race people? It's not being less of one culture. It's having the opportunity to have a deeper connection to more cultures. And joining us now to talk more about his documentary film, the Emmy Award-winning producer and director, host and director of the HBO original documentary, A Thousand Percent Me, Growing Up Mixed, W. Kamau Bell. It's so nice to have you back here with us in the studio. I know. I've, I remember this like going back to high school. Right? It's like old home week here. Um, and we're happy you're here for it. It's such a it's such a beautiful film, and it's great to watch with your kids, I will say. Mm -hmm. What? What is this about for you? This is a really personal journey. Why did you want to make this film? Yeah, I mean, this is the most personal project I've ever worked on because my kids are in it. All three of my daughters, my, me and my wife, Melissa's daughters are in there. Two of them talk. We've spent a lot of time trying to keep them out of the spotlight of my career because my career is also divisive, as you said. <laughs> so uh, it was a big deal to decide if we're going to talk about mixed race kids, we want to put our kids in there. And I think if we hadn't, we'd have had a mini revolt in our house. So yeah. they really wanted to be a part of it. Um, I mean, they seem like naturals. Yeah. Uh, your daughters who are in there, was there anything that really surprised you in these conversations with both your daughters and with the other families? You know, and it's funny, I, I, all the kids, like especially the younger kids, really are very clear that being mixed race is not, we, I think those of us who are older think it's like biracial or half this and half mm -hmm. this. All the kids are like, no, I'm both. It's not fractions. It's just I got more of everything. So I'm not half black and half white. I'm both black and white. Right. There's a there's a young woman who says, and I'm I'm her name is escaping me at the moment, but she says, you know, it's not that I'm less than anything. Yeah. There's just more of me and more to appreciate. And that's actually one of the other kids. I think it was Miles in the film mm -hmm. um, who said, I'm a thousand percent human, right? And yeah. that's kind of where the title comes. That's where from. the title came from. He didn't know he gave us the title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is he going to get an extra credit on that no, one? No, yeah. No, no. No. No producer credit for no. him. Um, I was really struck by, and I said this to you, full disclosure, off camera, I was reminded how at younger ages, so a lot of the kids initially in this film are more elementary school, later elementary school, including your daughter, Sammy, just that incredible confidence that kids have at this age and this self-awareness. And I was struck too, you asked your daughter, Sammy, what she sees when she looks in the mirror. And I just wanna play her response. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? I like to think that mirrors don't show everything. Like, mirrors show the outside of you, but they, they can't tell, like, the inside of you or how you identify, like, just by the look of you. 
which is how it should be, right? Yeah, but sorry, we, somebody cutting onions? Yeah. What happened? <laughs> somebody making a lasagna? The cooking segment next. Yeah. And yet we know um, in this country, it's all about what do I see? And then immediately mm -hmm. trying to put you into a category and say that you can only be one thing, even if you are. Mixed yeah, race. and I think that this film is shot in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think a lot of this film is a testament to the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. These kids see mixed kids everywhere. They're allowed to talk about their mixed status. They're allowed to claim multiple identities. I think, you know, they're allowed to be they them if they want to be and nobody pushes back on them. So I think the idea being that like this is a very specific group of mixed kids. We've heard from a lot of mixed people around the country who are like, it is not like that where I live. So I think it's really a testament to the Bay Area, but also a sort of a criticism of the rest of the country where kids don't feel this safe or mixed. It's also interesting because you we hear the perspective from from the kids, from your daughters, from other kids around their age, but then different generations as well. And yeah. their experience not only changes, I think, with age, but we really see a difference in terms of what they have lived based on their generation. Well, yeah, I think what you, what a lot of the kids, as you said, are at elementary school age. Once you get to that middle school level and that high school level, the outside world starts to push in a lot more. And we hear from a young woman named Kaylin who's in high school. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that like she's in this position where she's like, I don't know if I'm allowed to do the things other black people do because I'm not considered black enough, which is not a thing that Sammy feels. And I feel like my goal as a parent is to encourage her to hold on to the feeling of I can do whatever I want to do as a black person. But you definitely know that like there, and then we talk about trauma in the film, that yeah. trauma starts to push in the older you get. Are you more or less hopeful for the future, not only of this country, but for the future, for the, the world that your daughters will inherit? I mean, I think this is true across all social movements. Every generation pushes so that the next generation can have a little more space. And yeah. I think the generation of mixed kids who are older and mixed adults have made it possible for my daughter's generation to have more space. But that only happens with work. So my daughter's generation has to do more and more work so the next generation hopefully has less and less work to do. Um, it's so great. Thank you. Thank it's you. so nice to have you back here. Thanks for having uh, me here. And the film again, you can watch it now, the HBO original documentary film, A Thousand Percent Me, Growing Up Mixed. You can stream it on HBO Max and on HBO. And our thanks to WML Bell for joining us on set. Also this morning, we've been tracking this all day. It's happening tomorrow. The coronation of King Charles III kicks off in less than 24 hours. We have coverage of the historic event. Stay with us. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. The National Alliance on Mental Illness says that one in five American adults actually struggles with their mental health, but less than half of that receive treatment. This CNN hero helps millions of people navigate grief and loss. I think our society has told us that there's something wrong with you if you feel broken and that mental health breakdowns equal weakness. I believe that the truth is it's the ability to allow ourselves to be broken that opens the opportunity for healing. One of the things that we underestimate as a society is how our global mental health impacts us as individuals. And we have seen it over and over again as we experience gun violence. On one hand, we can see what happens when people don't get the help they need. There can be tragic consequences. On the flip side of that, you have families dealing with the grief and trauma of living through or not living through gun violence. So we are in this canoe together. We are all impacted by gun violence and how that influences us 
changes depending on where we sit in the canoe. If you're actively struggling with your mental health and you haven't told anybody, I'm asking you today to please share your struggle with one person. And if you don't have a personal relationship with someone where you feel like you could make that call, please use one of the many mental health hotlines that are available. It feels so lonely when you're struggling by yourself. Know that you're not alone in this, I promise. Such an important message from Michelle Neff Hernandez there. It really is. Uh, and a reminder too, you can nominate your CNN hero, log on cnnheroes.com to yep. do that. Absolutely, such a good story there. To hear more of her story, you can also see it there. Thank you for joining us today. Nice to be with you. Happy Friday, happy Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco de Mayo. There may or may not be a margarita in our future. Um, thanks, Erica. Thank <laughs> you for joining us. Everyone have a good weekend. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.